In the last five years, there are more new surfing training and coaching programs than ever existed in the entirety of surf history prior, but there is only one that I know of that isn't designed for newer surfers. Think about that. If you're an average surfer, if you're an intermediate surfer, maybe you're the best surfer locally and you're ready to start venturing to Hawaii in the wintertime to test your metal. Who or what would you rely on for guidance, for training? In every other sport and discipline, tennis, jiu-jitsu, golf, boxing, high-quality coaching and guidance is commonplace for both recreational athletes and professionals. And that is the exact motivation that WaveKey was founded by, continued development of skills to deepen your joy and passion of surfing. That's it. It would be crazy to think of improving at something like jujitsu, golf, or tennis without expert feedback. So look at WaveKey students like Parker Coffin and Taro Wantanabe going from pro-level surfer to best-in-class over the past few years. Those are prime examples of refining skill while deepening your passion and your love for surfing. Check everything out on wavekey.com. Use our promo code to save you 20%. The promo code is wavekeysplendor20. Refine your skills, increase your joy and passion for surfing. There's no need to stop learning just because you become an intermediate or even a good level surfer. Continue the journey at wavekey.com. Enjoy. Driftline.co, patented wetsuit lined board shorts to keep you chafe free, warm, and comfortable in the areas that matter most. And by the way, I cannot find a downside to these shorts. It's just a half a millimeter of neoprene built into the board short. So drifties look like you're wearing normal board shorts. And the neoprene is so thin that it actually doesn't restrict movement at all. There's no downside. Instead, it actually feels more comfortable than if you were going free because it's cushioned and it has that compression quality that just feels secure. Plus, it completely eliminates the chafe that you experience from long days in trunks that can really interrupt and inhibit the fun of a surf trip. The board short itself is made out of the same premium, durable, technical materials that you've become accustomed to in board shorts in 2023. So driftline.co is their website and Instagram handle. Use promo code SPIT to save 15% on your purchase. They make classic drifties and then also eco drifties, which use eco materials, less water, less carbon emissions in the production process. Both versions are available on driftline.co. Promo code SPIT saves you 15%. Thank you, Driftline, and enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Okay. 
I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. My bathing suit's drying on the porch. My mother is crying upstairs. It's bad man. You bad man. And all I want is my Jessica. My Jessica. My Jessica. My Jessica. My Jessica. This is a really fun episode for me. Sean Crowley was a hot New Jersey contest grom in the mid-90s. I met him in the mid-2000s in the wine industry of all places. He then moved to New York City where he started a surfboard bag company, and then he and his wife did what many of us dream about doing but never actually follow through with. They sold it all and they moved to Mexico. They've been there for five years. He's been telling me to come visit ever since, and I finally made it down there earlier this month. So I wanted to know all of the decisions, of course, about what led up to the decision to bail on the US. What are the costs involved of moving to Mexico? Is it all that it's cracked up to be? Are there any regrets? So that's what this conversation is all about. I figured you might be curious about those details too. And then the truth is, I actually had some insights into the details of his life in Mexico because Sean launched a YouTube channel to document the move, which is actually involved into documenting their home's construction, their exploration of the town that they're living in, little things like getting a custom rug made for the home, him exploring all the local surf in the area. All of that is documented in a really fun, playful, irreverent way with tons of insights. It's super entertaining. The YouTube channel is called Sean in Paradise. Of course, I will link to it on surfsplendorpodcast.com. But anyways, I had a blast in Mexico uh, spending time with Sean. And I think, of course, you will glean a lot of that uh, earnestly through this conversation. And then if you wanna learn more, of course, follow Sean in Paradise. But without further ado, my name is David Scales for Surf Splendor, and here's my conversation with my old friend, Sean Crowley. So long overdue. Jeez, Cheers. Man. 15 years? Since we first met? Yeah. 15 years of it, right? 2006, 2005? Yeah. Right around there. 
wild. I know, really wild. I don't record a lot of podcasts with uh, friends who are friends first before the podcast. That's true. I don't think I've... I'm a listener. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, Sean Crowley, what are we drinking? We are drinking the Buckle Bukel. I think it's Bukel. It's a... Uh, my neighbor here uh, in Mexico, his son owns a vineyard in Colorado, and he floats me a few bottles every time he comes down, and it's fun. It's Colorado. Who knew there were wines in Colorado, or wine made in Colorado? I think at this point there's wine made in like all 50 states, but... Uh, it's a little known fact. It's a little known fact. What do you think of it? It's actually way better than I expected it's it to be. It's not very like... David and I are a bit snobby with wines, and... Uh, a Zin isn't like the first thing that I would want to be drinking with you after 15 years of, you know what I mean? <laughs> and especially not in Mexico, like a big hot Zin on a hot day. You know what's, that's all true. Mm-hmm. However, the, uh, the best wine experiences of my life were more sentimental than they were about the bottle itself. Absolutely. And so this fits exactly that where it's like, why would you be drinking Colorado Zin on a hot day in Mexico? Yeah. And it's just, it's, yeah. like, it's kind of the perfect... You'll remember drinking this wine. It's the perfect yeah. wine, yeah. kind of strangely. I guess it's probably the perfect wine because uh, tonight we're going to be drinking something completely fun. Podcast, part number, part two. And that's after, gonna, dark. after Dark. <laughs> after Dark. <laughs> after Dark episode. After Hours. Um, we're going to get into how you and I know one another and how why cool. we're wine nerds and all that sort of stuff. Sure. But let's start with your surf backstory. I think that's the most logical place to start. Cool. Um, which to be perfectly honest, maybe you told me about 15 years ago, but honestly, I don't, if you did, I don't really remember. I wasn't listening very attentively back sure, then. Sure. Yeah. I didn't know we were going to become friends. <laughs> um, so where did you grow up and what was your exposure to surfing? Wait, how many times did we surf though? I think once. Once, right. Yeah. I can remember once at uppers. So I, uh, I grew up in ocean city, New Jersey, which is like a seven mile long Island off the coast of New Jersey. And uh, when I was 11 years old, my brother and my father went out to buy me a surfboard. I had no idea. Like, I was, like, super into boogie boarding. I was, like, a total just beach kind of kid. We lived about two blocks from the ocean. Like, I was just all about the water. And uh, they bought me this surfboard. My brother was a pretty accomplished surfer. In fact, my brother spent summers in Puerto Escondido charging, like, legit charging, with no money, like had no money, would just go down to Puerto with his like boys with like a hundred dollars for the whole summer. And like in was, the mid nineties or something? No, in like the seventies. Oh my god. So my brother's eighteen years older than okay, I. Okay, okay, okay. So he was uh he was super keen on getting his like little baby bro a surfboard and getting him surfing. So they Do you went have up photos or videos of any of that charging? Of my brother? Yeah. None. That'd be insane. I know. Because I can't even think back to who was surfing it back then. He has all the names. Like okay. I could probably ask him. Uh it was wild times. Like, you know, like he would come back like emaciated. My mom never wanted them to go. Like he would like, they would just eat fish on the beach, like whatever washed in. I think they did a ton of drugs. Like it was like full on seventies. Like my brother was a pretty, like my brother was like the quintessential surfer, charger, druggy kind of traveler. Got it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they went out and tried to find me a surfboard. They had to drive all the way north to Grog's surf shop, which is like about an hour and a half north of where I grew up. And they went to try to find like a board that was my size. I was a pretty small kid, 11 years old. And uh, the guy at the surf shop didn't have anything in stock, but then like one of the team riders overheard them and he was like, yo, come out to my car. 
And he's like, I got this board that's like perfect for that kid, you know? So they sold my parent, my, my dad, a, a rusty surfboard. It was five, seven, 17 and a half by one and three quarters. Oh my god! Not even two. This thing was such a blade. This was like, probably like 1989, like 1990. And this board was just like a total toothpick. And they brought it home for me. It was like the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. And I was like, I was in love. And I surfed that board every day after school for three weeks before I stood up once. I was just, I, it was so small. I didn't live in a place where there was like epic surf, but I was so turned on and so determined that like, even if I had friends that were already like going down the line, you know, okay. they were like 11, 12. So I was just like, it, it, Ocean City was a very competitive place and I just wasn't going to like not do this thing. And it was literally, I remember it was three weeks. I didn't, I didn't stand up once. And I remember when I stood up, it was just like, that was it. What was your exposure to surf media? Were you like reading magazines and had favorite surfers and all that sort of stuff? I think I did. Uh, when the contest came to Atlantic City in the mid 80s, there was a pro contest, I think in like 84. And like, okay. I think Shane Haran won it. I got to meet Shane Haran. I got to meet Sean Thompson, who spelled his name like me, which right. was like a big thing for me back then. Um, so I, you know, I wore, I wore all the stuff. I was super into it. I wanted, you know, I had Vans from second grade on. And okay. Yeah. Like I was, a, I was definitely like a surf kid, but that was the culture of Ocean City. It was a surf town, you know? Um, by the way, how cool was Rusty as a brand back then? Dude, we're going to get to that because that's like a part of my story as well. It was from my youth. Yeah. I don't remember when it stopped being cool, but I do remember going into eighth grade. Yeah. And my mom took me school shopping before the first day of school. Yeah. And I bought two rusty t-shirts. One had Taylor Knox mm -hmm. on the back and one had Kalani Rob on the back. Oh my God. And they were just, they were images straight out of the magazine that they then like. I can picture the Kalani one. I think everyone's seen that. Like, is it the turn or is it the barrel? He's doing a turn off doing an end turn. section at Rocky Point. It's a Rocky Point. Yeah, yeah for sure. Definitely. And it was an image that ran in the magazine that they then like illustrated into kind of a little graphic, yeah. you know? But it was, I was so proud to yeah. show up in school in those shirts. The logo is sick. Yeah. The team riders were sick. And it was just like, it was the coolest. Yeah, Rusty was, Rusty had a real cool core thing going, especially like in the 90s. Well, yeah, Pat O'Connell and the Endless Summer 2, like that sure. did it for me. Well, know? they put all, they also put out their own videos. They put out uh, No right. Thrills for the Cautious, and then they put out Cheap Thrills for the Raucous or something like that. And it had like Smashing Pumpkins, Gish, like yeah. the soundtracks were sick. Um, the, the surfing was just like electric. It was so like progressive for that point. Yeah. Especially because they, they mixed in a lot of Aussie guys that I had no idea who they were. You know, like Shane Herring and guys like that. Yeah. You know. Todd Chesser was on the team. Chesser, for sure. Yeah. So that was an epic. Well, let's go into that then. What, how's well, that so, part of your life? So I guess we'll, we'll get there in a second. Uh, so I, I started surfing um, at 11. I'm on this board. I'm like working my, my ass off and every day. I'm like literally every day. Like there's no, I was the kind of kid that would wake up at 5.30, go check the waves. And then I'd call my bro and be like, yeah, you know, dude, I think I saw a couple like thigh high ones that looked like, you know, I would like literally like lie and kind of sell them because I didn't want to go surf alone, you know? So I worked my ass off surfing for like the first year. And by the time I was 12, I was getting offered a sponsorship from the local surf shop. Shut up. Yeah. Yeah. I was uh, Larry Friedel, the owner of Seven Street Surf Shop in Ocean City, New Jersey, came and asked me to like be on the team. And I actually remember my mom picked me up from surfing that day and I was so excited. I'm like, mom, 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 like Larry asked me to be on the team. And she's like, well, you're not going to do it. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? And she's like, well, 
surfing is like something, because I played team sports my whole life, and she's like, surfing's just something you do for yourself. Like, surfing's like yours, yeah, you know? Well, well, she doesn't even know what a team means, probably. Right, because I'm like thinking, like, I'm going to get the contest, I'm yeah. sponsored, I'm going to like put stickers on my board. And uh, she just wasn't having it. I mean, she let me do what I wanted to do, which was join the team eventually. But uh, yeah, that was funny. Like that, and now that I look back, she was so wise. Like you know, like I didn't need that. It actually, like, as much as I had a a fun time surfing in contests and going down that route, like being a soul server would have been way cooler. Like mom knew for sure. Yeah, but the kid, as a kid, you don't even know what a soul surfer is. No, I there's no validation for what you're doing and the work that you're doing. In the soul surf path. Yeah. You want the validation from the surf shop. For sure. I definitely did. It was the biggest thing in my life. It was I mean, like, that's huge. It was to, huge. To a kid, I mean, that is absolutely the biggest thing. Yeah. What, so what was their expectation of you? And what, I mean, what did it mean to be on the team at that point? I think it meant that I got like free rash guards. I got boards at cost. I got like clothing at cost. And then he would pay my contest fees if I placed first, second, or third. So you had to front it, and then he'd give it back to you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for That's sure. That's a good, smart deal on his part. Yeah, it was a good deal. Smart. I, I think he kind of did that with everybody. Everyone was sort of on probation when they got started, and just because why not? Yeah. They're a bunch of little kids. They're not, half of them might not even surf the next week, right? He doesn't know. Right. So yeah, that was, that was pretty cool. He was a really, uh, Larry's an interesting guy. Very cool guy. Yeah. Definitely. Is that shop still there? Yeah. They have like three or four shops. They still sponsor, uh, they sponsor Rob Kelly. I feel like I've seen yeah, it. Yeah, Rob seen Kelly, Matt Keenan, all those yeah. guys. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. So uh, how does Rusty factor in? or when? So anyway, uh, I guess the long story short is I became a competitive surfer. I, uh, I was very serious about it, and I competed in the ESA and the NSSA. And uh, I was winning contests, and I was you know, sending my portfolio off to companies, and I eventually uh, was asked to be on the Rusty team. So that was, was like that a... Was that because you had sent them something? You know, no, I'll, I'll be very honest with it. It was because um, Matt Keenan, who was a couple years older than me, was on their team, and he had recommended me, essentially. He had sort of, like, vouched for me. He said, like, you know, here's his contest results. The, the team manager at the time, I think nationally, was a guy by the name of Darren Brillhart. Mm-hmm. Is he still in the industry? Totally. Oh, no way. Yeah, so he was a I super... I think he runs, like, production, organizing contests and stuff like that. All right. Brillo Productions. He was a super organized, like, he was one of those guys, like, he just seemed together. And, like, getting his validate, like, he asked me very, like, adult questions when he was kind of, like, interviewing me. And, uh, yeah, he put me on the team. He was super stoked. He saw me surf at a pro-am contest in Atlantic City um, that I actually surfed against Nathan Florence in. Fletcher. Nathan Fletcher in. Yeah, right. And, uh, And I beat Nathan Fletcher. And while we were walking out of the water, he said to me, Man, they really pushed you through. And I was like a couple years younger than him. And I idolized this guy so much that I was just like, oh, man. Like, like I felt so small. You know, like it, it crushed me. You know what I think that was? He's West Coast. He's not even, you're not even on his radar. Like the East Coast oh, yeah. isn't even on his radar. No, and the waves were and- absolutely junk. Like it was such a junky contest. And like I was good at surf. I'm still good at surf and junk. You know, like yeah. he was a guy that was surfing the best waves in the world. You know, And he came from a family that had legacy. So it's like, yeah. he's surfing in an event he doesn't even want to be in. He doesn't want to be on the East Coast. Definitely. And then the local East Coast guy, yeah. he's going to just put you in your place. He did. Even he though did. he lost, he's he, going to put you in your he place. He for sure did. <laughs> what, a, what a 
jerk. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's a good guy now. I think when we're all young and you're competitive and you're getting out of the water, you just say what you say. I mean, but the impulse to even need to like squash somebody's one little victory oh, dude, in yeah, life yeah. is such a dick. And move. it really pissed me off because like I had Brill Hard on the beach and I'm like trying to get this sponsor. Like I knew what was on the line. I yeah. had to like beat this guy. Yeah. That oh, sucked. So what was the deal with Rusty? So the deal with Rusty was I started with clothing. And uh, they would just send me boxes of clothing four times a year. And then when I would go out to the nationals to compete the nationals, I would be able to like go to the factory and like run through the factory and pick out like twenty items. I think they gave you like twenty items at the time. And you would like try to pick out like because I lived on the East Coast, I would pick out like big ass weather coat, you know, like winter oh, yeah, coats yeah. and stuff like that because I like you know those are expensive. I grew up like super middle class, like middle class, lower middle class, you yeah. know. So like getting a winter coat was like actually when I was 15, 16, that was actually like a... Well, you're the youngest too, so it's probably hand-me-downs anyway. Everything was yeah. hand-me-downs, yeah. Um, I mean, I have not thought about this for a long time, but you're activating some of my childhood lust. Mm -hmm. Getting a box of free clothing would have been the greatest thing in my life. It was amazing. As a kid. Yeah. I've, I venerated pro surfers so much. Yeah. And I wanted, you know... I lived in the fantasy of thinking that that was a possibility at some point or something like that. And so if I ever got a free sticker, oh that gosh. was like gold. Yeah. But to be in that scenario where you get in the box or doing a free run through, I get free boxes all the time. Now. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, Oh man, I miss all those boxes. Yeah. I'll tell you. Do you? Yeah, for sure. But the thing is, is that I think I was more stoked on this, the first initial seven street surf shop. Thing. Were you? Yeah. Because that was like, you know, you know, it's like you're always chasing the high, right? With with wine or with with whatever in life. Like the first time is the best, right? So when I got approached that first time and it was out of the blue like that, that was huge. The rusty thing to me felt like a culmination of a lot of hard work, like a lot of surfing sessions before school, after school, and flat waves and 39 degree water. Like I earned that. Um, yeah, I earned that. I felt so. It was clothing, but did you get boards too? So then I about a about a year later, I made the national team. Uh, so I was one of 18 that made the NSSA's national team. And a little bit of that had to do with the fact that they gave regional allocations, you know, and I was from, I was the best guy in the Northeast in my age group. You know, I think that year I had won, like, I surfed both open and explorer juniors. I think I won like 10 contests. I mean, I had a really good season. So I made the team, even though I think I only like made a few heats at the nationals, which was cool. Cause I got to surf trestles with like three other dudes. <laughs> But the guys were so much like better than me. That was the thing. Like back then, like East East Coasters, we were good, but we 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 weren't like the California guys. Like I think I had Omar Echeverry in one of my heats, and that guy was just like it was a whole different. And he's my age, you know. Yeah. But it was a whole, and and I was gonna make the national team. Like I was the best guy from the Northeast at the time, but I was on such a lower level. You know, you even you'd surf with the the guys just at like a O side break, like Oceanside. We'd go surf there, like we'd stay down there for nationals and stuff. And just the average guys were like, good. Like they were guys that would have stickers on their board back home. Right. You know. Well, what's funny is Omar Echeverry, Santa Cruz guy. Mm -hmm. You're using him as the example, but even he was C to C lister. Right. Right. You for sure. I mean? For sure. Definitely. I mean, even guys that I don't know where they fit in their like. I, some of the most amazing surfing I've ever seen in my life was at Lowers with, he, I don't think he even shaped at the time, but it was Cordell Miller. 
and I was like 17 at the time, and I just saw this guy. It, it, I felt like he was serving with like a halo. I, he couldn't, he's just the lefts and the smoothness and the maturity and like the, just ahead of his time with some of the ways he was tweaking his tail into the lip. I'd never seen surfing like that before. And like Cordell Miller's not a QS, not a CT or ASP back then. Like he wasn't a, you know, he was a great surfer. People respected him. He obviously owns Trestles at times, right? But like he was nobody. It's a great example. Cordell on the left at lowers, leashless. Leashless. I always remember seeing oh him leashless. Gosh. Yeah. And just so locked in to his thing, not even looking at the rights. No. Like there's no, no. But he was so. You would just get out of the way. Yeah, yeah. You're like, I don't even want to go left. There was no left. expectation that anyone was going to challenge him for a wave. He just was just on it. fully locked in. And man, it was, you know, when you grow up surfing on the East Coast, you are so concerned with down-the-line speed. Like, I'm a pretty fast surfer because I'm so concerned with getting down the line of a small, thigh-high, choppy wave. But these guys, they're used to going, like, top to bottom and then top to bottom again and again on the wave. They don't pump. You know, their pump is in, in the turns. Yeah, they're going just as fast as oh, you. Oh, they're going yeah. faster. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's an interesting, Cordell's an interesting example. But to your point, not even caring about chasing contests or doing any of it, mm-hmm. just has all the talent. Oh, my gosh. And just, you know, doing yeah. his own thing. Wow. Yeah. And I hear he's like a pretty amazing shaper. Yeah. 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 Cool. Still made. And I remember those boards too that he was riding. They were never. There was something about the aesthetic of what he was doing. No stickers on it. No stickers. Oh, it's so funny you remember that. Yeah. yeah. There was no stickers. They sort of felt like a little wider in the nose, but they they did have a sharpness at the top. You know, they they sort of had like the shoulders had a little more juice in them or something like that. He was really in the zone of yeah. what he was doing. It was, he was cool. a great example. That was cool. I haven't even thought about him in a while. Yeah. Um. So. Made the national team. Rusty stepped up. They started offering me, uh, like, I think two boards a year. Like, I That's wasn't... It. Yeah. Oh, my there was, gosh. I was trying to get on... There was, like, a, a... Rusty had what was known as the Super Grom program back then, and the Hobgoods were on it, and, um, of course, Kalani Rob was on it. Like, they were, like, the Super Groms. And I, I was always trying to, like, get their... that Whatever that deal was. Like, I have no idea. But I just... Because I was from the Northeast, I was like, well, I'll just get whatever these guys get regionally. I sort of had that mindset. But um, they were just light years above totally. my performance level. And I, and I knew it then. And that's a big reason why when I graduated high school and it was like, well, okay, I'm a pretty successful surfer. Like maybe I could give it a run, right? Like maybe I could go scrap on the, you know, try to pay contest entries and, you know, regionally, right? But I just... I looked at it and I just said, like, I'm, I'm not, I'm not top forty, you know. And there's no money in the top. Like back then, you know, money was in the top ten. It wasn't even in the top twenty. True. Uh, and I wasn't ever going to be top forty. So I was like, I just like, I'm going to go to college. Like, I'm not that good. Yeah. You know. Well, a lot of people chase that dream. They don't have that self awareness, and they spend a bunch of time and money chasing that dream. You know. But it's in a way, it's a regret of my life. You know, like I had friends who surfed a couple years pro, semi-pro. People did calendar shoots back then. And they started doing video shoots back then. Like maybe that would have been something that the the idea of be, being like a um, like a Dunham and Frankenrider or like a soul surfer or a non-contest surfer was so foreign to me. But like the people that had vision, they yeah. they they navigated that path. Frankie Oberholzer. Frankie Oberholzer, right? Yeah. But I just didn't have that. I didn't have that confidence, and I didn't have that that foresight as well. Um, it also could have been your demise, 
Can you imagine a young Sean out on the road, no. traveling the oh world with full access to Vice? No. So, I, you know what's so funny that you say that? Because I always think to myself that uh, I'm five foot seven on like the best day. And I think that that is like my blessing. Because if I was like six foot and I had like that confidence of being like a tall person, Dude, I'd be like, I'd be so crazy on a motorcycle. I'd already been to Mexico and died twice. You know what I mean? <laughs> so like, I always think like, thank God you were short, man, because you'd probably be dead otherwise. You had to have something kick you down a little bit. Yeah, because I had a lot of, I had a lot of like unearned confidence, <laughs> you know? Well, apparently not too much though, because you did identify that you didn't have a surf career ahead of you. It's true. Um, it's true yeah. I thought you were going to blame Kelly Slater's surfboards on, Absolutely. on That's, the failure of your career. I do want to throw that out there. I was riding these awful potato chips. They did not suit anyone surfing. Kelly and like a handful of three other guys were the only guys that could surf it. We were all still going with like these full rocker chips. It was awful. Yeah. Kelly, Kelly, I think Besides myself, Kelly is responsible for ruining my surf career. I agree. He's yeah. responsible for ruining everybody's surf progression. It wasn't my career, but I certainly spent 10 years riding those boards sure. and ended up at the end of the 10 years. Probably would have taken me two years to get to that ability level had I been riding appropriately. Oh, like, boards. like the boards that we have access to now. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they're, just so, they're so smart. They're so easy. They really work for us. Yeah. But I will say this. The, the, the knifey boards had a... There was an element of danger. They really cut a, a turn. Like when those tails were so narrow, like the way people would blast them in such like tight arcs, like that surfing's kind of gone. Like that real explosive, like tight radius surfing is kind of gone. And now you're seeing these like drawn out, like people call them combos, like going like from one rail to the other. And that's pretty, it's nice, but I don't know. It, I, I do miss like the aggressive like Shane Powell, like snap, like there's not as many snaps like that anymore. And I think that has to do with like those potato chips could really do it. The other detail is I went through so many more surfboards when I was young oh, yeah. and I was always riding hand-me-downs or used boards that I bought off the rack. Yeah. So they were probably already kind of construction, you know, um, delaminated or something like that, but co construction compromised. But I would go through four boards a year easily, you know, then it'd be the only board I would ride. So I rode it a lot, but then it would be two or three months and I'd have to get something new. I never had multiple boards when I was young, even when I was sponsored. Not at the same time, but didn't you go through them quicker? Yeah, I probably did about three or four a year as yeah, well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Whereas like now I feel like I'm one, I'm just one board a year exactly. basically for yeah. my, for my daily driver kind of right. deal. Um, well, what'd you study in college? Political science. I didn't know that. I wanted to be a lawyer. Really? Yeah. yeah. I never knew that. Oh, dude, I was full on going to be a lawyer. Like I wanted to be, I wanted to practice environmental law. That was my deal. Wow. I know. That's weird. But I'm not even sure that I really wanted to be an environmental lawyer. I think I just was saying that because I didn't want to feel soulless. <laughs> I probably would have just chased some money and went corporate. Did, did your parents want you to be a lawyer? Uh, Why would you even want to be a lawyer? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, no, they didn't want me to, but they were really happy that I made that, that that was the career path, okay. you know. But now, mind you, I barely graduated high school because of surfing. I, I basically got out because a Croatian calculus teacher, like, passed me. <laughs> I had, like, a D average. Like, I, I really, like, I, I had a 2.1 when I graduated high school. So, consequently, I had to go to a year of community college and then which I was dean's list at in Carolina. We moved to North Carolina. 
and uh, and then applied to schools and got into them and stuff like oh, okay. that. Yeah. So you were smart. It was just... Yeah, just not. I was surfing. Not I, applying yourself. My mother, bless her heart, she would like... We, we got... 18 days of sick days like throughout the school year and she would let me take every single one of them like nine per half a year to just go serve amazing kind of amazing <laughs> so when you went to college um did you just get a bachelor's degree or I didn't graduate you never graduated never graduated why not you probably didn't know that no i don't uh, i mean we've never talked about that phase of your life uh there's been so much to discuss otherwise there's been a lot to discuss yeah i uh my mother I, I ended up getting 90 credits, so I was a year away. My mother fell ill in North Carolina. I was up in school at Seton Hall in, in uh, about 14 miles outside of New York City. My mom fell ill. My father didn't seem to be handling it too well, so I kind of went down to Carolina, took a semester off, and just never went back. Hmm. And then I, I didn't want to go back. Like, I, didn't even, I didn't care at that point. And then I ended up getting a job as a newspaper reporter. And I, I worked as a newspaper reporter for almost two years in, in North Carolina, in Jacksonville, North Carolina. So I was like, well, what do I need a degree for? Like, I can talk my way into a newspaper reporter gig. And yeah, so yeah, so. What were you reporting on? So I, uh, I was a beat reporter for Surf City, North Carolina. And I would, uh, I would cover like everything from local politics, city board meetings, like the board meetings that you hear people goofing on and stuff like that. Like I would go to those for five hours at night on a Tuesday and like write a story about it the next day. Or if there was a fire, I'd write about that. Like it was a small beach town in North Carolina called I, Surf City. I've been there. I've oh, you've been there. there. Oh yeah. Did I ever tell you? On Topsail Island. Lauren lived on Topsail Island. Oh, dude, Topsail Island. I mean, I was first of all, I was born in North Carolina on Jacksonville base. The I Marine. didn't know that. Yeah, so I was born right there. And then she lived there for a year. That's wild. It's a beautiful place. It really is. And they have awesome waves. Topsail, Topsail. People don't even know. Like that's a cool place to live for sure. It's a twenty-six uh, mile long island. Uh, like that's not quite barrier like the Outer Banks, but like just as cool. Yeah. Sort of in like the Wrightsville, Wrightsville Beach area. Yeah. 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 Yes, I was a newspaper reporter basically for Topsail Island. That's hilarious. Dude. It is hilarious. I covered so many, like I covered like antique store thefts and like. Yeah, yeah. She'd love to talk to you about that. Yeah, that's funny. About your time there. Yeah. Um, not to rush through some of that, but yeah. how did you end up in California? So. Because you and I met in California for listeners. Yeah, but. yeah. So uh, I'm, I'm working as a newspaper reporter. I'm. I'm working in a town that's like a Marine Corps town. <laughs> and like, as much as I like what I'm doing, I'm making like $25,000 a year. I'm actually thinking that I'm a writer. So I start working on a novel. And I'm not getting any luck with the ladies because there's 29,000 Marines stationed there at Camp Lejeune. And they all like swoop up all of the girls that are in the area because they have like a nice job and a lot of security. and. Plus, I was a northerner. I was like, I was a Yankee. So I like, I had, I just didn't have anything going on in North Carolina. My mom had gotten healthy. Like we had worked on that for almost two years and got my mom to a place where she was doing better. And my buddy that I grew up with in Ocean City said, hey, you want to move to California? And I was like, all right, like I had some money saved up. So we moved to California. And my idea was I was going to move to California. I was going to get a waitering job to pay bills and then all day long I would work on my great American novel which were you still surfing I when I arrived in San Clemente like when we arrived in California we drove across the country 
Uh, I surfed for like three weeks before I got a job working for the Beverly Hills Wine Merchant. Okay. And I was ripping those three weeks. Like I was surfing down like Rivieras, you know that spot, San Clemente? And I was sleeping on some kid from New Jersey's uh, couch in San Clemente. And like there was all these other, he was trying to be pro, his name was Kevin Richards. And he was uh, like staying with all, with all these other like younger pro surfers. And yeah, I was like ripping for those three weeks. And then like, of course I got a job and like, that was it. I don't think I surfed, I don't think I surfed more than 10 times in the almost 10 years that I lived in California. Um, were you surfing in, in the Carolinas? Yeah, I was surfing a little bit. I'd probably so, surf like twice a week, three times a week. A Burt Surf Shop that was down there sponsored me, which uh, was no kind of cool. Even though I was like kind of like old and fat. I was like in my mid-20s or whatever. So isn't it weird though how little you surfed when you were in California? It's, like It's completely bizarre. And it's part of the reason why coming back to surfing after being away from it for a decade is like the biggest gift that I've ever given myself. Because it's un, it's so much a part of my identity, like surfing, and... I, I literally ignored it for a decade. So I understand why some people who are hobbyist surfers then get away from it for a period of time. Mm -hmm. Life's obligations take over. But for the level of surfing that you were doing, and forget about the level, the passion that you just described that sure. you were doing it with for all that time, sure. it seems so bizarre just to not want to do it anymore. I transferred all of that passion into the study and learning of wine. So Beverly Hills Wine Merchant, you yeah. go from... <clears throat> Reporting, were you interested in wine when you were in the Carolinas? How did you get interested in wine? Uh, yeah, in college, I actually worked at a place in New Jersey called the Park Avenue Club, and they had an extensive American wine program. And uh, I just like I would work there, like you know, for tips and stuff like that, working my way through college. And uh, I fell in love with wine there. Okay. And I started like I remember there would be nights when I wasn't a very like I wasn't a very good college like I wasn't very good. <laughs> like I would like sit in my dorm room at night. I, oh, I was an RA first of all. So I was like responsible for all these people. And I would just sit in my dorm room at night reading like Wine for Dummies 101 or whatever those books were and like drinking a bottle of wine that I got from the restaurant. And that was it. I was just super, I was super into it. All I knew was domestic wine at that point. Sure. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so, I, was too, I was totally passionate about it. Okay. For sure. So part of the plan with moving to California and working as a waiter was... Was that I knew food with wine. Yeah, I knew food and wine. I knew service really well. Like I knew fine dining service super well. I knew wine service pretty well you know like enough as a 23 year old kid can kind of bluff his way through it right yeah yeah so yeah so uh what were you doing at the beverly hills wine merchant how'd you end up in beverly hills too so they were opening uh, so i ended up in newport because they were opening up a wine store and restaurant in newport beach um it was an ad in the paper because that's how you found jobs back then like i answered i was like i remember being in san clemente and like some weird housing you know you know the housing developments are there and like circling ads in the paper and it was like wine guy needed and i called up the uh the owner's wife she answered the phone you know told me to come in for an interview and i think that she just like dug me you know i think she like liked me she saw me as kind of like cute and innocent because i kind of was that at the time and uh, i was very eager very polite i presented well and she hired me to work in their wine bar because that was cool and she hired me for like 12.50 an hour and uh the wine bar manager quit the first weekend that I worked. He was super stressed out. And uh, they were like, him and the owner were battling, like, butting heads. And then she looked at me and she says, you're the wine bar manager now. And I was like, all right, cool. So I was the wine bar manager. What year was this? This was 2002. Okay. Yeah. And how old were you? 25. Wow. Yeah. 
so so yeah, I'm 25 years old, and like the Beverly Hills wine, like wine merchant, which is a pretty established place. I mean, it's a kind of an icon in the industry. Like, yeah, they were like, yeah, here's the wine bar. Which goes to show you the dysfunction of the state of the wine industry. That doesn't show my <laughs> prowess in anything, you yeah, know, yeah. for sure. And that was at the Newport Beach location? That was at the Newport Got Beach it. location. Okay. So I ran their wine bar. I did a good job with that. In the first year, they gave me their retail to run. And then they, helped, they let me open up one of their restaurants as well that okay. was on the water. Helped staff it, you know, that kind of stuff. Okay. So that was my foray into the, to the wine world, basically. For the very few listeners who are listening who actually are interested in wine, what were your epiphany wines? I can tell you that the first wine that I was able to identify regionally by just tasting it blind, not knowing what it was. I worked with a chef who was awesome, and he would teach us about wines after the shift every night. Uh, he would crack open like wonderful things. And we, we were able to actually, the deal that we had with the Beverly Hills wine merchant was that he said, Open what you want, drink what you want, just write it down. Really? Yeah, it was insane. It wow. was insane. <laughs> that sounds like a losing business. Yeah, it, that was a creative business. That's a whole other podcast. It's like, it's like old money that's just funding this business because he loves wine. He's a Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Dennis Overstreet, he's a legend. Yeah. And, and, but moreover, he wanted his, his staff was a reflection of him. And if we didn't know really what we were talking about, like his customers could see right through that. These weren't like... His customers were like pretty elite. Like they were the people that really knew their wine. So if we had never tasted this stuff, like also it was a different world back then. Wine prices were way cheaper. Way, way, way. Markedly yeah. cheaper. So the wine that blew my doors down was a bottle of 1996 Dujac, Domaine Dujac, Burgundy, Claude de la Roche. And I remember just sniffing it and, and smiling. I remember sitting at the bar and sniffing and smiling and going, oh, that's Burgundy. You know, and like my buddy was like, yeah, you got it. You know, he had a lot of experience. He was like, yeah, you got it. I was like, fuck yeah, I got it. It was like, it was like such a cool thing. And then I remember we would kind of do blind tastings every night for like months and months. You know, I was there for about a year and a half. And uh, the next wines that really turned me on were the Manfred Crankle wines, the Sinequinons. I forgot about that. I feel like we talked about that at some point. Yeah. And I remember, I, I don't remember all the names of the different wines, but there were a couple half bottles of like rosé sort of. But they were rose days that were so dark and complex yeah. and menacing. And they were just like, and, you know, I was young, but I was like, you know, it was, it was like a kaleidoscope going on. You know, like I really like, it really turned me on. That, that became like a hobby in a way that surfing was a hobby. There was an excitement. There was a collecting, you know, how people sort of collect. I was collecting all these flavors. I was like building this sort of like ledger in my mind of what things, you know, what things are and like really organizing them mentally. Mm. I took it very seriously is basically the, the bottom line. Um, have you had any of the man, the Sinequinon wines in the last 10 years? No, not a single one. How man, are they? They have jumped the shark. Oh, no. Sinequinon. Well, wait, how should I word this? Sinequinon was Early? esoteric and like uh, well, cerebral. And I mean, they were. They were Early Sinequinon yeah. is to. The deb is to professional surfing what the Dream Tour was, and current Sinequinon is to professional surfing what the WSL currently is. Oh, man. They followed the same trajectory. For it's sure. It's jumped oh, the no, shark. That bumps me I out. I mean, so this is way too yeah. wine nerdy heady for most listeners, but those wines are as you described them when they first kind of came out, the first 10 years of their existence. Yeah. But they were super ripe, they were over the top wines. They, they were, were over the top. I, I will say that. Ripe, but, but they they're were high alcohol. Super structured. But 
had all of the wonderful things that you want yeah. out of wine, like yeah. structure, balance, all of it, and explosive with flavor, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And also completely at the same time, deft and oh, yeah. te textured, nuanced, all that sort yeah. of stuff. So could, pair, like, could still pair with food. Totally. Even though they were huge, they would like sit down to stuff. Yeah, so it was everything that you want in wine, but a, a fuller volume than the Dujac that you're talking for about, sure. right? For, oh, for sure, yeah. Well, now, all of the nuance is gone, uh -huh. and it's just pure ripe over-the-topness. So the deafness has left the building, all of that stuff, and it's like I continued buying them for three or four years while it was making that transition, and then I really had to look at myself and be like, man, this is no better than you know, a $60 sure. uh, Central Coast Syrah, basically, yeah. that is trying to be Sinequanon. It now is kind of Sinequanon. You could still flip it on the market. Actually, yeah. the other thing is the 100 pointers, you could flip for a profit. Mm -hmm. The non-100 pointers, you could flip it on the gray market for equivalent of what you paid. Wow. Except you paid for it a year ago. Jeez. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's kind of not worth it to play <laughs> the flipping game. Do you game. want to invest your money to make 0% profit? And now they're offering you 36 wines. They used to offer you six. Yeah, it was very special. And you felt like if you got a bottle of it, like that was something for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But I agree with you. Those early days were... Uh, you encountered one of those wines and it was like it was like seeing a unicorn in the wild by the way and if you unicorn, went to a surf shop like you'd be like oh my gosh uh, not surf shop but if you went to a wine shop and they had it you'd be like wow and the unicorn delivered on all of its majesty it did it really did those are really really good wines no. is but, there anything out there like that now is that I don't know I don't no. follow it you don't closely follow enough closely, yeah. no but the Dujac is timeless. Like that Dujac, a hundred years prior and a hundred years in the future will still be oh for sure what it was for you definitely with the ninety six. The, the other wine that really rocked my world was uh, a bottle of, which was sort of an off vintage, but it was a bottle of 1988 um, Chateau Palmer from Margot. And it just like, it really like, to me, that was like Bordeaux at its finest. It wasn't like, you know, this was in the mid 2000s that I was having it. it. It wasn't over the top, but it really had this like poise, like this confidence. It was one of the few wines that I've ever had that I actually didn't want to have wine or food with because it really was such a beautiful standalone you know just everything about it was like savory and sweet and it had all the components but that that opened my eyes up to bordeaux which has also now changed a lot yeah you know? um it's funny how crystalline your memory is about those specific wines i think those specific wines really were formative i mean it's not I think that seems more specific if, you know, because wine has this sort of like mystique about it. But you remember like the surfboard, the, the, the photo, the video, like you could probably retrace like Sonny Garcia's lines of a certain wave in a video. Yeah. So I think we all have those like real crystalline. For anybody who's into wine, they also have the epiphany wines that they remember just as well. as I think you everyone remember. does, right? Yeah, yeah, I think so, too. Yeah. Um, do you remember how you and I met? I'm going to say that uh, my business partner, co-manager, and I at the time went to the restaurant that you're working called Fora in Long Beach. And we sat there probably looking like we were on a date, even though uh, we weren't on dates, myself and Chris. And uh, you were our waiter, I'm going to say. Were you our waiter? All right. So just let me fill this in. So I think you were our waiter. Or you were the manager at the time, or, or the wine steward. You were our waiter. And we were super impressed with, like, your whole demeanor. And I think we offered you a job. Yeah, that might be... I mean, that's as close to it as I can remember, because I don't really have a super vivid memory of it. Yeah. You guys worked in a wine shop 
five doors down yep from the restaurant i was working in yep and uh, that wine shop had been there since 1938 so, so come forward this isn't the beverly hills wine merchant no. this is maury's of naples right in long beach california yeah on the island of naples yeah and so it had been there it was third generation owner at that time it had been there since 1938 I was born in Long Beach. I had spent a lot of time in Long Beach in my life. So I knew of Maury's. Like my oh, wow. grandparents. I never actually at considered that that was a part of your, like you just knew that that place existed. My, my grandmother and grandfather met in Long Beach. Oh, wow. He was born in Kauai and joined the Navy and ended up stationed in Long Beach or docked. They docked at Long Beach or something like oh, that. Wow. And that's where he met my grandmother. Can I ask a question, like yeah. not related? When he docked, was there a break wall there? Was I have no clue about yeah. that. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, but he was young still. I mean, he must have been 20 at the time. Wow. So it yeah. was a long time ago. But sure. um, so I have a lot of, you know, uh, connection to Long Beach. So I knew of Maury's. Mm -hmm. And I was just getting into wine at that time and taking it more, much more seriously. And so I think I had been into Maury's mm -hmm. because I was working down the street. I would go into Maury's just to peruse or maybe buy bottles occasionally. Yeah. And was really developing an interest in that restaurant because on Naples. It's an affluent island that people live on so and are super into wine. Tons a of millionaires. It's yeah. really, it's bizarre in a way. And so they would bring in fancy bottles of wine to the restaurant. Sure. And the restaurant, I think, had a pretty good wine list as well. Fora was a good restaurant. That was a Fantastic. great restaurant. Fantastic, yeah. Yeah. And, um, and so my, I, my whole world was opening up to wine at that point. So I knew who you guys were. Mm -hmm. And so when you came in, I did not think you were on a date, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I knew who you were and uh, would have loved and relished the opportunity to work in the wine scene. Oh, cool. And so I don't know who presented, if you guys did offer me a job or if I asked if you had a job, I don't remember the exact details there, but we I, were headhunting at the time. Okay. Yeah, perfect. for sure. So the timing was perfect. Yeah. But I had graduated college with a bachelor's degree in psychology and my wow, dad that's yeah, wild i know and that's my dad and i was my parents lived across the street from the college yeah and so i was living with them still and they were like go get an mba my dad was like go get an mba good advice great advice yeah, right sure. And i'm like i got a bachelor's degree in psychology if i'm gonna go to grad school i'm gonna want to pursue psychology yeah he's like i don't know get the mba everybody i know you can use that in any industry For sure like just get the mba and i'm like i don't know I don't really feel passionate to do that, but I'm loving wine. Yeah. And so he's like, well, you're not going to work as a server for the rest of your life. I've been doing it right. through from the end of high school through college. So I'm like, well, oh, that okay. actually, so I didn't know that either. Yeah. So you were good at it. So, well, yeah. so these guys just offered me a job in the wine industry, yeah. <laughs> quote industry. Yeah. Right. And, um, I can pursue, I'm interested in wine. I feel passionate about wine. Like I'm going to pursue that at least for a year, basically. Oh, and interesting. My, and my dad was like, well, do whatever you want to do, but I'm just telling you I'll pay for college if you want to go to grad school. Oh, my gosh. You know, good for you that you got your bachelor's degree, but I'll pay for it if you want to go continue on. I'm like, I don't know. Let me try this out for a little bit. So you for you for went grad school to come work at Maury's? Look, I didn't have grad schools like banging <laughs> down my door. It's not like... You were the top guy and Yale was knocking and... <laughs> I had no direction, you know, yeah. he, I had no direction or passion or desire to you do were young. any of that For education, sure. yeah. but I knew I could come back to it in a year, but you know, the wine thing turned into more than it. I was just like, I'm going to pursue that. Sure. And then that transitioned and the surf thing is now my whole path is different and not worth getting into now. It's a different podcast as sure, well. Sure, sure, sure. But going and working with you guys was, um, 
it was a dalliance for me is what it was. Well, I will say this. Uh, I don't really know what a dalliance means right now as a writer, <laughs> but uh, you were just very together. You know, even we were looking for someone that was young, that had like an affinity for wine beyond like, you know, had an affinity for wine that we had, basically. It was obvious you had a passion, you had a, like a, a, a sort of refinement beyond your years. But I think you've always been sort of like, uh, I don't know, man. You've always been like very like proper, you know, like the voice that you hear David saying on this podcast, like he's looser than that, but he's also sort of that guy. Like he's a pretty organized, proper guy, so... <clears throat> it's important for me to present as such. You definitely... For whatever reason. You presented yeah. as such, and we were super keen to that, and then you came and managed our wine bar. Yeah, so that's a whole different thing. That's a whole different I thing. I really want to focus so much of this conversation on your move to Mexico and all sure. rediscovering surfing and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, you know, oh, let me tell you a, a really weird thing that happened. I don't know if it's interesting or not, but one of our customers at Maury's was... Um, a, an amazing professional female surfer. Oh yeah, that's right. I can't remember. Jericho. Jericho Pop Poplar? Yeah. Yeah. So Jericho would come in and buy wine for us all the time and she'd be like, oh, you surf? And I was like, I used to surf. And I was like, you surf? And she's like, yeah, that's surf. You know, like, I had no idea who she was. Female world champ, I believe. I've, I've since learned that like Jericho was like, not only like an incredible surfer, but like a pioneer for female surfing. Oh, yeah. Like she was like a big deal. Huge. And as much as I was denying my surfing past, like I didn't, I never connected with her on it because I was always like, no way. Yeah. We never connected. Like I was like, I surf. She was like, Oh, well I surf, but we never really, cause she wasn't the type of person that was going to give you her resume. She's a humble and she was just interested in buying wine from us essentially. So check this out. Mm -hmm. Uh, just Googled it. Jericho started surfing at age 12. She was known as the first lady of professional surfing as the first world tour pro winner in 1976. Oh, that's so sick. I yeah. had no idea. And yeah. she was like just a lovely customer who I think lived on Naples Island. I think so too, yeah. And was a customer. And, and when I was introduced to her, she was always just delightful. You know, I really like appreciated her whole energy. Totally delightful. She was inducted into the Surfing Hall, International Hall of Fame. Yeah. Uh, and her... I just learned this fairly recently. Her daughter apparently was on a reality show on Bravo, the one about sailing below deck. Are you serious? Yeah. Oh my god. And I don't watch the show, but like somebody told me, like I think oh, I've yeah, seen like one on... episode of it or something. No, she was like a cast member. No, I think I've seen one oh, episode. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, that's yeah, yeah, wild. Yeah, which is kind of funny. Um, well, at any rate, yeah, yeah, that's a great tie-in that I kind of forgot about as well. I guess what I'm trying to say is that that. In that decade that I was in the wine industry, um, not only in California, but I also did it in New York City as well, I, I was no longer a surfer. You know, I, like, I just rejected my surfing. I just didn't even think about it. It wasn't a thing anymore. Um, I've confronted this with myself a little bit. How much was that connected to, like it could just be, okay, now you have a new hobby. Yeah. Or how much was it connected to, Drinking copious amounts of alcohol sure. is directly <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. detrimental yeah. to waking up early and doing physical activity. I think that, like, uh, yes, 100%. But I, I, I think I had the bug before, you know, like, I, how do I say this? I left surfing behind when I decided not to be a pro anyway. Yeah. Not to pursue the dream. I sort of left it. And I... But yeah, it definitely doesn't contribute to that lifestyle for sure, right? I've denied it for yeah. myself for a yeah. very long time because there was so many other uh, life obligations that mm -hmm. were taking over my time and my responsibility yeah. that 
I could easily point to is why I've kind of surfed less and less of, yeah. as I've gotten older. But if you just graphed David's interest in uh, <laughs> number of hours yeah. surfing and David's interest in number of hours drinking wine. Number of bottles of wine. They're completely inverse. Yeah, right. One goes up, one goes down for sure. So how do you not look at that? You know? uh, yeah, I think, there's, it's a, I think it's a little more complex for me. There's also a lot of... Um, there's some guilt associated with it because I didn't pursue it. There's some guilt associated with it because not only because I quit college, I quit surfing. There's some, you know, I, I quit things at times. And uh, that sticks out pretty personally to me, actually. Like feeling like a quitter? Yeah, feeling like a, for sure. Like not like, following Not through. following through. Yeah. Like I can, like I'm a great flash in the pan. I can shine super bright, but man, I burn out super quick. How's that novel coming along? It's great. <laughs> Thanks. Don't forget to check out my YouTube channel. <laughs> and realwatersports.com. I have two quick notes here. Scott Bass and I are booked and confirmed. We will be at Real Water Sports in the Outer Banks of North Carolina for one week in the middle of July. And we're actually hosting a meetup at the Waterman's Bar and Grill on Wednesday the 19th from 6 to 8 p.m. So Wednesday, July 19th. So if you're anywhere nearby, please come hang out. It's super informal, but we're going to already be there. And we'd love to just connect with anyone who listens to the show and has these shared interests. Plus, we just love the Outer Banks. So we're looking forward to being there in general, but connecting with you would be an added bonus. The second note here is also a little bit time sensitive. This morning, one hour ago, Brett Barley just dropped off 26 trade-ins, used super brand surfboards. They're starting at $150, believe it or not. And I know Brett Barley's boards might be too small for most of our listeners, too high performance, too chippy, but Real Water Sports has an entire section of used gear. So you can find crazy deals like that on all sorts of stuff. They have a kite gear section. They have a foil gear section. So if you've been looking to get into foiling and the investment in it has been a speed bump, this is a great time to kind of hurdle that. Pick up a starter rig for 70% cheaper than you would pay for it new. So go check it all out right now. It's on realwatersports.com. Navigate down to the used gear sales section and get yourself the deal of a lifetime realwatersports.com rourke.com have you watched garden variety yet it is on youtube available for free harrison roach and his mates traveling around java on two strokes riding waves finding adventure these are the trips that birth gear and clothing needs breathable materials hidden pockets within pockets elastic loops to tie keys or tools to clothing that doubles as waterwear or streetwear these are artifacts of adventure that can only be developed from real world exploration so whether it's climbing surfing skating camping motorbiking or just city exploration rourke has you covered see some of the gear being r and in garden variety starring harrison roach on youtube but also save 15% by using our promo code SPLENDOR15 on Rourke.com. R-O-A-R-K, Rourke.com, 15% off with SPLENDOR15. Enjoy and thank you, Rourke. 
Hiring for a small business is critical. It's imperative that you find a highly qualified professional to treat and grow your business with the same care and detail that you do. LinkedIn Jobs will be your next big unlock. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team fast and for free. Everybody is already on LinkedIn with their resume and their references. So the fact that LinkedIn built a hiring platform to connect the dots between everything is simple genius. It's way more sophisticated than a job board. It's a vast network of more than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set, desire, ambition, all in an effort to help us advance our position. And it's easy to use and intuitive. So effective that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Fast hiring solutions means achieving your goals in record time with rapid growth in 2024. LinkedIn Jobs will even help you write the job descriptions and give you tools and prompts to help you interview your candidate like a pro. LinkedIn.com slash surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. And you can let the world's largest social network of business professionals work to connect you with the ideal candidate to help you grow your business. That is LinkedIn.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so you end up in New York. So you leave Southern California. We don't have to get into all those yeah, yeah. details, but you end up in New York working in wine. Uh, meet the love of your life. So I met the love of my life uh, essentially online because I had a, a vlog or a, I had a blog about a cat, and she was a cat person. And I end up in New York, and it's 2012, and the summer of 2013 comes along, and I think to myself like, well, there's waves in New York. Maybe I should kind of like, I had some stability. My, my wife had pr provided some stability. She wasn't my wife yet, but she had provided stability in my life. My life went a little haywire actually after the, after the wine world for about five years. Uh, my, it was just a total roller coaster. 
And then now that I had stability back and I was living in New York, I was like, well, there's waves in Rockaway. <laughs> and uh, I, I went back down to 7th Street Surf Shop, bought a board, brought it back up to New York. What'd you buy? I bought a JS. I bought okay. like a 5.6 JS that was like a groveler kind of thing. It was actually two or three inches, probably too big in retrospect, but it was enough foam for me to like, I hadn't surfed for basically a decade. I hadn't surfed since 2002, seriously. Yeah, you and I did surf that once in California. I remember surfing uppers. Yeah. I don't even remember what you were riding or if you owned it. Did you borrow it? I don't like, remember. Yeah, I don't remember either. I don't remember a lot of those years, which might yeah, be the I point know. of some of this conversation. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I got that board back and I started surfing again in New York and it was just like, wow. It was like my whole life started feeling normal again. I mean, I really felt like I was home again. Good for you. Yeah, it was it was really a big thing, and I was awful. I was so I oh, was really? so oh yeah, it was so bad. It took me, I think, I would say it took me a solid three years to really look. I could turn and stuff like that, but you know, I surfed at a level that I still remember. You know, like there was a, a I remembered the level at which I had surfed, and it took me about three years to feel like I was within fifty percent of that. You was know? your body just out of shape? My body was out of shape. My timing was out of shape. You know, all the core things were still there. Like, you know, when, once I was got going, if I was, you know, if I had a sweet section or anything like that, it was really, it was easy. But no, like everything was just off. Timing was very off. Yeah. Yeah. So much of that for me personally, I've never taken that much time off, but mm -hmm. is body. It's like, yeah. if I, if I am off, I can always attribute it to like, I need to drop weight or I haven't been surfing. So like sure. my quick fiber, whatever that is, yeah, isn't yeah. quite on fast. But if twitch, I get, yeah. yeah, fast twitch. If I get my, um, if I get those things locked in, then the mechanics are immediately back. You know, that's, well, that's like, good. My brain knows how to do it. Your brain does know how yeah. to do it. And I guess surf shape is so different. Like it you is. can be in, like I wasn't like out of shape or anything, but I wasn't in surf shape. Right. That's a totally different discipline. Right. You know? Right. Um, you started a small surf brand. Yeah, so surfing kind of like, you know, it became the bug again. We um, we started a men's fashion pocket square company. We started a surfboard bag company, which we did like these super high-end bespoke board bags. And then we started selling a little apparel as well. We got mentioned in the New York Times. I would say so that... I would say that like Stab Magazine's new board bags look uh, surprising. Like their black ones that they're doing right now are surprisingly like the design that I sent to Ashton years ago but really yeah i mean it looks very similar but you i can't. didn't know that they were doing yeah they're yeah they're doing this they're like doing board bags they're doing these black board bags that have some sort of name and they're kind of like they've got this indie sort of vibe and i was like doing these really slick so black what, board bags tell me as well what the concept was and um so the concept of our company which we've shuttered now was called motai and it was the idea it was a japanese idea basically essentially taking things that could be wasted and not wasting them that was the concept and it was giving it was giving respect to your items essentially to the things that you own in life and so we were basically taking like off cuts of fabric from the garment district in in new york and you know they were like kind of like a neoprene like a neoprene fabric and we were building board bags out of that and then we were also supplementing some of the pockets and things like that with used wetsuits that like people were shipping us and that i had in stock and that friends had in stock and stuff like that so we sort of made this like homegrown kind of surfboard bag company and had a little following and it was super cool. Like I had a lot of repeat customers and a lot of cool customers and uh, yeah. Um, why'd you shutter it? 
Because we moved to Mexico, okay. essentially. Yeah, things were going decent. I mean, it wasn't like we weren't getting rich, but we were supplementing some income. And then we, when we moved to Mexico, you know, to ship a board bag to the United States is just, you're going to add 50 bucks. It just was problematic. So. Yeah. Especially at the level that we were interested in being. You even know, even getting those, the raw supply chain that you're talking about. Oh, yeah. Isn't available here. It's not available yeah. at all. So, yeah. so everything's interrupted. Um, so the reason why I want to focus so much of this conversation on the move to Mexico is I think so many Americans fantasize yeah. about I, so many Europeans just move uh, internationally without even thinking about it. It's just a common thing. In it's the a culture. rite of passage, right? Yeah. yeah. And I think a lot of places around the world, but Americans, I think, feel probably anchored to America for I don't know why. I didn't have a passport until I was 33. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't even leave the country oh until I was 33. Well, no, that's not true. I mean, I went to um, Barbados surfing at a time when you could fly with just your like oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. student ID or your driver's license or whatever. Uh, but yeah, no, I didn't, even, I didn't even have a passport until I was 33. So for a lot of reasons, people now are considering getting out of America. <laughs> yeah, right, for sure. <laughs> yeah, a lot of new reasons. Yeah. Uh, while they once felt anchored, now it, it's just so unbelievably expensive. Yeah. There's so much just going on, whatever. It's a lot of drama. A lot of drama going yeah, on, sure. right? And then yeah. you look at how other people live around the world and you're like, wait a second. Those, so the quality of life is just different. It's different and better and, elsewhere. And we were living in New York. Uh, it, I guess everything goes back to the fact that my wife and I got married in 2015, and I was charged with planning the honeymoon. My wife was the primary bread breadwinner at that point. She was a um, a fashion designer that worked for a pretty medium sized company in New York City, a successful company. And so I had all the time in the world to like plan our honeymoon, essentially. We're married in September. The honeymoon's going to be like around Christmas time, around the holidays, because that works for my wife's schedule. And I was just sort of looking around because we needed some place that was like close enough, but we wanted to go to a beach, but I wanted to surf. You know, that was the main thing. And Mexico seemed like the sort of like easiest flight from New York City, like six hours. We had considered going to like the Philippines and that was like 18, you know, it's a whole nightmare. So I looked down at like Puerto Escondido and I'm like, I'm not a big wave guy anymore. Like I don't have that in me. And I didn't want to go to Baja because I don't want to put on a wetsuit, you know, in the middle of December. So I'm searching on the computer and I come across a Surfline article that said siestas and Sayulita. And it showed like an image of like some Mexican flags, like the colored flags and the town. And there was an image of Luke Davis, like doing like a little cutback on like a two foot wave. And I'm like, I'm pretty familiar with two foot waves, you know, <laughs> that's like my, that's my wheelhouse right there. And, uh, so I was like, Oh, cool. And I read the article and it was basically like, come to Sayulita if you want to surf, but you also want to like hang out and be yoga and be kind of like, go to eat some food. You know, it was like, it was basically like I was planning a honeymoon with a side of surfing. You know what I mean? Like I, it wasn't like a surf honeymoon. Um, so I, my wife was like, cool, whatever. I don't care. Like, let's just, let's just figure it out and go. So we came down here on our honeymoon. We're staying in Sayulita. It went flat in Sayulita. And I heard about this town to the north called San Pancho. And we came over here and to this town. And it was like this incredibly like cool, hippie town, very small, like a lot more quaint than what Sayulita is or was or has become, which is pretty populated. And it just felt like home. It actually felt like Ocean City a lot. Like hmm. it felt like the tourist community that I kind of grew up with essentially. 
And we kept coming back to this beach and coming back to this beach. And I'm surfing here in San Pancho. And little do I know that my wife is on the beach scrolling through real estate listings. And she's like looking to see like, what's a plot of land in Mexico cost? And on December 31st, the day before we left, so New Year's Eve, we met with a realtor who showed us two pieces of land in Mexico, like two pieces of land in, uh, in San Pancho. And we looked at the land and we asked how much it was and we made an offer. And then like literally the next day we flew back home to New York. And the next day after that, we found out that our offer was accepted. So the land was 70,000 originally and we offered 57, which I felt was like a real low ball kind of like. You're used to New York numbers. I know. I it's know. just so like hard to get in the headspace. And it was like hard because I like I didn't want to offend the guy. Like yeah. I didn't want to say 40 and have him be like F off because I, I kind of was like, wait, what's going on here? Are we buying a piece of land in Mexico? Is this happening? Like you're on your honeymoon. There was never an intention. For there was this. never an intention. Yeah. The only thing that was going on was that my wife was doing killer in her job. She was feeling super confident. She had bought an apartment in New York that she was killing it on. We felt really good, like life was good, you know? And uh, I didn't want to offer too much because it just, you know, it felt like, yeah, yeah and we offered- well, You could just walk away, like there, there was no desire There was no, desire we, in we had no, like, like, we were like, this could be a cool investment slash retirement opportunity. Like that was our only- The plan wasn't to move down. The plan was not to move down. Oh yeah, the plan was not to move down. The plan was, if I'm being honest, the plan was for my wife to have an investment property. Maybe we can build something, do an Airbnb. For me, I wanted like a place that I could go to for like a couple months of the time and like surf and write. I was thinking I was going to write again and stuff like that. So I was thinking of like a living part, you know, I wanted to live part down, part time down here as well. Yeah. So yeah, there was no hope. So there was no, you know, we should have offered less money in retrospect, but we, you know, it was accepted and, and, and we got the land. It was, it was like... It was, it was actually, it was super surreal. We were just like, we looked at ourselves in New York and we're like, is this really happening? Like, are we really buying land in Mexico? And by the way, in coastal Mexico, within 50 kilometers of the coast, you actually don't own the land as an American. It's, you can either buy it through a prestanombre, which is like a Mexican's name, or you can buy it through a bank title, essentially, like a, a bank lease. So we bought it like in you know, with the bank for a 99 year lease, essentially, right. which is not dissimilar to what we had in New York because we owned a co-op, which is like, you never really own the co-op. You own shares in the overall co-op, you know? So we felt comfortable with that kind of arrangement, actually. 99 years. And the th in theory, the bank will just renew for another 99 years. Yeah. Yeah. Right. They're exactly. not going to take it out from under. Yeah. You. If you pass it down to whoever, you know, in, right. in your family, you still have the land. Right. Yeah. Right. So all of a sudden it's, uh, April of 2016 and we are now flying down here to meet the actual owners of the land to sign the papers and to you know finish handing over the rest of the money and get in the land it's crazy it was crazy it was you had super. been once we had been once we had been here for two weeks we had seen uh, nothing but like this town and the town next door we had no idea but yeah. the gut instinct was so it felt so much like home to me, even though I don't speak Spanish good. I didn't speak much of it then at all. And it was totally a foreign country and a foreign culture. It just felt so familiar. It felt like Ocean City again. Crazy. Yeah. And sometimes you also just, 
you know when it's right. You just you know. know. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I knew I knew with my wife the first time I saw her, and I knew with this place the first time I saw it. Yeah. You know? And the other thing, just like since you're mentioning numbers, um, you should have offered less, but it was a smoking deal in terms of what the market's done since and what it will do in the future. Absolutely. You got a smoking deal. So you the, could have saved 10000 bucks at the time. It won't matter it ultimately won't matter. in the end. Right. You know what I mean? So. It was all a good decision. I think so. Yeah. And, and we're, we're still very friendly with um, the people that sold us the land. And they've actually helped us with some things that we had to navigate since. So yeah. not like grinding a person down. Like we offered a fair thing. You know, we felt good about it. Um, so then it, you have to decide what to do with the land. I instantly wanted to start building. Okay. My wife was probably, my wife Astrid, she probably wanted to like, pace it a little more but i convinced her that like look the building prices are only going to go up 15 20 percent every year this town is going to start really smoking through and it has like it, real estate has tripled in in the time that we've been here in even five years like the land our the lot next door to us sold for 150 it's the same it's actually a smaller lot so in that sense like and building costs have gone through the roof. I mean, they've, they've actually like probably gone five times since then. So our plan was to build, to rent, to come down a little bit, to use it as a vacation home, and to maybe retire down here someday. About a year and a half later, we're almost finishing up the build. <clears throat> it's 2018. And I get a text from my wife at 6.30, which was odd because she should be on her way home from work. And she said, can you come pick me up? And I'm like, I've never picked her up at work ever, you know? And I'm like, what's up? She's like, I got fired. I'm like, she's our breadwinner. She she's, has a wonderful job. She's been there 20 years and it was just over like that. So I like drove in, I didn't drive in. I took the subway in, I, I helped her carry her boxes and we were like, oh shit, like what now? You know, living in New York, living in Manhattan, we had a, you know, we had over a $5,000 a month kind of nut to cover. And when the primary breadwinner loses, like, her job, you know, like, that's a, that's not like I can go pick up a job at McDonald's or go to the local surf shop and start scrapping together some income. And, like, we can't grow our business fast enough at that point to cover what these bills are going to be. And it timed out perfectly with the fact that like the house was literally like they were putting the last coat of paint on it <laughs> in Mexico. So I said, babe, don't, don't even stress. Don't just chill. We'll go to Mexico. We'll spend a month down there. We'll regroup. We'll figure it all out. You know, like no worries whatsoever. So we came down here for a month. I left. She stayed on another month by herself. Kind of did some, some soul searching and stuff like that. And by the end of it, we were like, all right, let's sell our apartment in Harlem, in Manhattan, and let's move to Mexico and just live there full time. And like, I was shocked, but I, at the same time, I was like, fuck yeah. Like, I was like, yeah, this yeah. is the dream. Like, this, I wanted this in a weird way, like underneath everything, right? Like, you need external factors to force you into doing something like that, I feel. We would never have had the gall to do something like this. Right. And, and the fact that like she lost this amazing job and kind of forced her hand in a way. You, know, you looked at the raw finances of it, like, you know, living in New York, you know, if you're five, five grand a month, 12 months, that's 60 grand. 
you can live down here for a third of that pretty pretty easily like as a an american who's addicted to amazon and things like that like you can still live yeah you know way less well every american who's maybe fantasized about making that move though mm -hmm. questions yeah but what do you sacrifice once you're down there there's a lot of conveniences in wherever new york southern california that i'm accustomed to that are worth paying that extra premium for yeah so I think there's two things going on here with that. Uh, it was easy for me because I was able to walk away from everything in my life, right? Like I walked away from college. I've walked away from careers. So to walk away from a country and to just move to Mexico, like, all right, that's, that's fine. And my wife, she had already left Germany. She's born in Germany. So she'd come to the United States. She left her home country and she had basically, you know, she'd become an American citizen and been very successful so she already had a history of like kicking ass in another country so there was really like we didn't have a lot of fear like yeah. i had a, no fear because like in a way like my life had become like what's left to lose like I, i've got like an awesome wife and all of my other things sort of didn't work out the way i wanted to like maybe there's a chance for a new opportunity here yeah and for her she had already done this once and the economics of it looked so enticing you know yeah especially when you don't have a job you know well yeah. Uh, yeah. And the other financial detail is the apartment in New York probably appreciated in value over that time, right? It certainly did. So that makes it easier to it was leave. An incredible if it decreases, yeah. then it's hard to... It was, it was an incredible investment for her. It really helped us to afford sure. everything. So really the question that we're distilling all of this down to is quality of life. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Like when you wipe away, erase the financial slate. Sure. Even, even though the financial slate will still usually say go to Mexico anyways. <laughs> yeah, right. But if you erase the financial slate, how is your quality of life in New York versus what it is in Mexico? Our quality of life in New York was awesome. And it's not even a fraction of how good it right. is here. Yeah. I mean, we lived, we lived really fortunate in New York. Like, we, we had everything we needed. You know, we really felt secure. And it was an awesome place to live. And New York has so much culture, blah, blah, blah. But, but down here, it's... It are, I mean, you can probably see it on my face. Like it, the quality of life's amazing. Like it's through the roof. I don't see a downside to it. it there's no down. There is a downside. Okay. The downside is is that you have to keep doing things. Like I'm 46 years old. Essentially, I'm I'm retired because I don't have a job. I've I've since launched a YouTube channel, and like that's something I'm super passionate about now, creating videos. But I had to do that because, you know, idle hands are the work of the devil. Like, you've got to stay busy. And my, my YouTube channel is called Sean in Paradise. But it's almost like a little tongue-in-cheek because I talk about my mental health issues. I talk about depression. I talk about, like, kind of going through things that have, you know, troubled me in my life. Because you can live in paradise all you want. But unless you're, like, still progressing as a human and growing as a human and pushing your life forward, like... You can't just you can't just sun yourself on the beach and surf and drink margarita like it doesn't work like that. That that creates a very uh, unhealthy, unstable, unhappy human human being. You I, know? Yeah, I mean, I'd be shocked if somebody made it to our ages and thinks that any of that is a good idea. I don't know. I I on my YouTube channel, I get so many comments where people are like, "That is amazing!" Like, "Oh, you don't you know?" Like they think my life is a party essentially. Yeah. yeah. You know, I don't. Well. I don't know. I, I, I think some people think that some people that have worked, the people that have checked all the boxes and been super responsible and have worked 
passionately and did the right thing and did the, the noble thing in their lives, and they're maybe 20, 25 years into a career and they're, and they're, you know, they're doing all the right things, right? They, they look at a life down here as just like, it's, you know, oh, I could, I could detach and do that so perfectly. I would be so happy with that because all of the struggles in my life are so, and like for a time you would be, but as humans, like we can't be idle. We can't, no. we, we can't, st- like we have to keep moving. Yeah. Like it's super bad if you don't keep the idle thing. You actually need a professional thing that like challenges you and makes you scary, like scared. Essentially. The, the idle indulgences that you were referencing, drinking or lounging on the beach, only are interesting and fun if you work super hard and you're exhausted when you participate in them. It's true, for sure. That's how I feel. Yeah, no, you, it definitely like, it, it is so shallow and hollow. They're good if for it's t- not, the two weeks of vacation. Yeah, but best. if it's not a reward for yeah. work, it doesn't feel right. Yeah. It really doesn't feel right. It feels, you feel guilty. Like I still wake up, even though I don't have anywhere to go, I still wake up at 7 a.m., with like a little pit in my stomach that I need to like go, 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 go. Because that was the only way I survived for so many years, especially in like in the five years or so that my life was pretty bad, you know? Um, Back to making the decision to leave. Sure. If you had had a kid or more. Yeah. What decision do you think you would have made? We wouldn't have, we wouldn't have done it, I think. No, that's not true. My, My wife's European. She might have been able to see it. I probably wouldn't have been able to see it. Do you think that a child would have the same educational opportunities here? I'd like to think that my child would have better educational opportunities here, for sure. I I think that there's a worldliness that you get in a town like this. You know, they they become multilingual so fast. You know, all the kids that are in these neighborhoods, there's like Montessori schools and international schools all around here. Yeah, for sure. And these kids are all learning like English and Spanish just like that. There's tons of French down here as well, so they're also picking up on that. Uh, I'm actually I, I, look. You can regret what you regret in your life, but we, my wife and I, got together in our 40s, essentially, uh, you know, late 30s and 40s. We just opted not to have a child, but like it would have been nice to have a child down here. I see these the families raising children down here, the Gringo families, because um, that's what I can relate to, obviously, and it looks awesome. Yeah. It looks really healthy. Like, these kids look happy. I don't know how it turns out. That's not... I can't decide that. I can't see that. But from what I see as a spectator, it looks wonderful. Especially comparing it to, you know, New York and the way kids are raised or whatever. 100%. Yeah, because I think in New York at this time, like, you know, maybe if I raised my kids in the 90s or the early 2000s, it was different. You'd let them fly a little more. But, like, you know, I understand why parents become helicopter because the world's become a little different. You know, I get it. Well, I mentioned to you this morning that location in terms, San Pancho as a location is, I mean, maybe the best Uh place in Latin America that I've been to uh, in terms of having where I would want to move, essentially. Like every other place I've been to, I can have a pretty distinct reason that I wouldn't want to be there long term. I could spend three months there. I could vacation there and I love it and all that sort of stuff but I don't know of anywhere that I would rather live in. And there's a lot of expatriates, it seems, that live here. Sure. And so that's why the Montessori schools pop up and all that stuff. Yeah. But there's nothing here that 
I feel like would be a sacrifice from my current quality of life. And you came from New York, which let's talk about the restaurant scene in New York is among the best in the world. Phenomenal and cheaper than, by the way, you can eat so well inexpensively too, if you're smart. No, in New York too. New York. But still this trumps it. This still trumps it. Yeah. This little town. So this little town, it's one main street. Yeah. Tercermundo, third world. And on the one main street, I'd say there's eight to 10 legitimate culinary inventive using as good and as fresh of ingredients as I've had anywhere from the fish to the meat to the vegetables. Yeah. Right. And they're equally as experimental and inventive as anywhere that I've been in the world. I don't get it. I don't understand where it comes from. I'm I'm still, we've met some of the, it doesn't make any sense. I I think it's people, this town seems to have to be a magnet for like-minded creative individuals from all over the world. You know, we have tons of Argentinians, we have tons of the French, we have tons of Americans, Canadians especially. And it just seems like the people that feel this place just have that sort of creative vibe and the, the food is outstanding and so, I, and it's beyond like it's it's super inventive it, and it doesn't feel like uh it doesn't feel redundant it doesn't feel derivative it actually yeah. feels fresh and new it's original yeah and i was mentioning cocktails too the other night at the restaurant i was like it feels like they hired a professional out of new york city yeah. to come down consult design this menu teach everybody and then bail because I've been around cocktails for 20 years and I, you know, I have a certain discernment, like I like a certain quality and I could not create something as good as this menu. This was a professional that did this. So it's really impressive. And that was just one restaurant, but there, there's 10 of them that are like that. It's a population of 3000 people. You know what I mean? Like that's the crazy part. This is a, a speck on the map. It's really interesting. So I'll bring all of this up to say. If this podcast is a sales pitch for ditching everything in America, and find, <laughs> if you find yourself in another small town in Mexico or elsewhere, it may not be as delightful as the experience you found yourself in. Oh no, this this just felt this felt right. This is unique. Yeah, this 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 felt right for our personality, for our situation, for the timing, for everything. Like yeah. the, the stars align. Uh, we've been to some other places in Mexico. I'm sure there's other towns that are just as exceptional. Uh, this just this is an, an anomaly, I think. It really feels like a... a and it's a, uh, you nailed it at the specific time. Like, it's yeah. going to get bigger. I mean, and that's part of the question. Should we be putting it on blast as much as we are? Uh, yeah, because I think that it... Look, to move permanently to Mexico... Like, for vacationers, just come. Spend your money. Tip well, please. But to... to like, we're permanent residents. We're going to become citizens of Mexico at some point. To go through all of those hoops, it's a lot. Yeah. So if you can do it, if you can sort it out, if you can navigate the whole system, like come down, like and come down and do right by the Mexican people. Like they're, they're the kindest. I always say this, like if you saw a dude walking down the streets of Harlem and Manhattan where I used to live and he was holding a machete, like you'd be super freaked out. But I see dudes walking up and down the street here in San Pancho with machetes all day long. And you're, you know, people are normally fearful of stuff like that. And to me, it just looks like home. Like yeah. that's, that's. That's this town. That's yeah. a brother. Like that's a family member. Like the first couple of questions I asked you when I got here were yeah. about safety. Sure. We parked to check the waves, and I'm like, should we? Should I leave my wallet in the car or my phone or like what? Yeah. I was concerned about it, and yeah. now I get it. Yeah, you there's feel no safe. concern. No, there's no. I, I'm I, more concerned at home for sure for about sure. my safety. Oh wow, that's interesting. Yeah. So uh, now the conversation is about waves. Yeah. So. So what are the waves like around the area? Uh, they're, they're average. 
they're average to good. It's sort of like anywhere else. Like, I grew up in New Jersey. Like, the waves weren't that good there. Uh, you know, like, people have made New Jersey look really good in the last decade because there's some pretty good filmmakers and some great servers. But, like, on the whole, it's pretty average. Yeah. And here, it's pretty average. There's spots that fire perfectly twice a year, three times a year, five times a year. There's spots that are specifically just like winter spots and summer spots. I would say that you can surf 365 days out of the year if you're willing to drive a half an hour and you're willing to surf a longboard. Like you can always get in the water and get some waves if you're willing to like jump on a nine footer. So if you if your desire is like, I got to be in the water daily, you could do it here. I surf basically every other day, like almost like as a metronome you know like i my back hurts more if i surf two days in a row so i try to just like space it out a little bit but there's always a wave somewhere it's always waist high it's always waist high somewhere basically but it's uh it's never it's never epic well i'll put that into context for people because the definition of average varies around the world a lot sure and i would say and i come from southern california where there's actually good waves good waves yeah um and this is good. Like, it's, yeah. it's average in terms of, well, it's not six foot and barreling. Right. But how many surfers are actually going to perform in six foot and barreling? Not many. So by the vast majority. So I wouldn't recommend to, you know, my pro surf buddies to yeah. come to a trip down here. No. They'll all be bummed. They'll yeah. be like, the waves are soft. Yeah. But to everybody else who's listening, mm-hmm. you can come down here and you can get waist to chest high surf. Point breaks, warm water, and beach breaks, and kind of everything in between. Yeah, definitely. It, it honestly, like if you look at the coastline of San Clemente. Yeah. Let's just say uh, from San Onofre up to Laguna Beach. Okay. All of those waves are similar to what this whole coastline is like. Yeah, definitely. I don't know if there's a lowers. There might be a lowers somewhere around here, but there's a lot of San Onofres. There's a lowers right for sure. Definitely here. Uh, there's a bunch of San Onofres. Uh, there's not a creek that has that sort of like real heavy bowl. Beach break Beach barrel. break bowl kind of thing. Although Venero's there beach. Are, yeah, there, there might be. Yeah, that's a good, that's a really good, there's a little bit of everything for sure. So that's a pretty impressive, you know, again, not for like. Yeah. If Parker Coffin is going to take a surf trip. He's not coming here. No, no, no. But the thing about the thing that's cool about here is that you're if you're willing to drive a little bit, if you're willing to walk a little bit, you know, through the jungle or down the beach or and and more importantly, if you're willing to wake up early, you know, sunrise, you'll surf by yourself. You'll surf with five guys or three guys. A clean or, reef break that's yeah. you know. Like we surfed the other day, it was me, you and what one other person, two other people. There was two people, they left. We surfed for an hour by ourselves. One dude came out who yeah. was zero threat. Zero threat. And yeah. it, it was it was quintessential waist high plus. Point break. Point break. Yeah, yeah for sure. With turtles popping up and the yeah. water's warm and yeah. you do six Oh, by the way, I want to say this cuz I don't think this gets talked I don't know if it, as a listener David Lee Scales can surf. I hope you don't edit this out. But David Lee Scales is like a solid, real surfer. Like, uh, you know, you listen to these guys on the podcast and you can kind of get what, you know. But I know David kind of keeps it on the down low with his Instagram. He doesn't put, you don't post clips much or anything like that. He's a real surfer. He's like a real, he's a real, like, smooth, good surfer. That's nice of you to say. Thank yeah. you. But it's true. I want to say that because, I, and honestly, I don't remember how you surfed 15 years ago. So seeing you this time out and seeing you like 
come off, get that first turn, then like bam into like a little low cutty. Like it was cool. It made me stoked. Uh, well, it's funny. Our mutual friend Tyler Brewer in yeah. New York. Yeah. One time he came to Southern California for work, I think it was, and he's like, hey, man, I'm coming out on whatever, Tuesday. Can we get together and surf? I've got like three hours in the morning. Mm -hmm. And I pull up the forecast. I'm like, shoot, there's going to be some waves. Like, yeah, I'll get up early. Let's go do it. Let's hit Newport cool. for where he was staying. And um, we surfed pretty good waves that morning, like rippable, you know, punchy, rippable waves mm -hmm. in Newport. And it just so happens that I ripped one wave in front of him. Oh, no way. Yeah, just one. Oh, isn't that, you know what I mean? is that the best thing ever? So it's like he and I have been friends for a number of years, yeah, yeah. but only through podcast world. So then he went back home to New York with just one wave that I... If he would have seen three of my other waves that day, he would have been like, David sucks. But he happened to just witness the one that I ripped. And so then like for like the next three or four years, I'd get messages from random people in New York or mm -hmm. mutual friends or podcast listeners. They're like, hey, dude, on the down low, I talked to Tyler. He said you rip. So and I'm funny. like, perfect. That's I planted awesome. the seed with the one... With the one person that's going to spread the word. The apple seed or yeah, whatever. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's going to plant it everywhere. He just went and planted and I'm just quietly leaning back. I'm like, yeah, yeah bro. That's right. That's yeah, right. don't tell anybody, all right? Well, you can tell everyone that I dug every single rail on the first day that we surfed. And then the next day was a little bit better. So. <laughs> um, people don't need my, my telling of your surfing because they can watch it on YouTube. That's true. So we've, so we've covered all those bases, but that you kind of touched on it a little bit was uh, Sean in Paradise. So, so yeah, I, I, what is the concept for Sean in Paradise and why is that the platform for you wanting to execute the concept? Interesting. So uh, I, I started a YouTube channel two years ago on my birthday and it's because I knew that I needed something to occupy my focus. And I wish I had started it years before. You know, I'd always been interested in, in film and things like that, but I never had the confidence. I, I, I didn't really like the idea of filming myself until I did. And then I completely like fell in love with, I've, I've, I've completely fallen in love with the medium. So I gave myself the gift of, I was going to do it for a year just to kind of like document my life of moving to Mexico essentially. And, you know, like a little bit of our life down here and our, our, what our life looks like and, you know, and, and kind of just show that to our, like our family and friends and stuff like that. But I like really like, I fell in love with editing. I fell in love with the process. I, I fell in love with my own voice to a certain extent. <laughs> and, uh, I just, it, if there's been two addictions in my life, it's the first was surfing. The second was the wine business. And the third is making these videos. Like I'm super passionate about it. Like. People always say like, oh, what would you do if you, you know, like if money wasn't an issue? I'm like, well, money's not an issue. I'm, I'm doing this for two years now and like I haven't made, you know, but a couple bucks. It, it's something that I'm like super passionate about. Like I'm going to document my entire life. Like I'm never going to stop. Hopefully it's mostly weekly, but like I'm, I'm just never going to stop doing this exact thing that I'm doing right now. Um, well, the original concept was to document the move, right? Which I think is very interesting. And like, we're documenting a lot of it now just through discussion because sure. I think that people do find it very interesting. Sure. So that was the original concept for the series. And then it's sort of, it's sort of gone beyond that because I really like fell in love with the medium and I'm like having fun, like turning myself into this character essentially. Um, it's so much my real life. And then at the same time, when I look at that person on the screen, it's a completely foreign person to me. Because I love 
editing so much, when I put myself into the computer and I look at myself on the screen, I, there's a bit of a disconnect. I don't really see Sean like as I know him. I just see this thing that I get to manipulate. Like, I'm sure that you would love to, to say to me, like, how do you feel as an adult male taking selfies all day and like <laughs> filming, you know, filming your Here, sub. Let me read my notes. Do you feel any awkwardness about being an adult male mid forties <laughs> vlogging in selfie mode? The truth is, is did you uh, check my notes when no, I went I to the bathroom? I didn't. But the truth is, is that like, I don't, I don't, I don't give a fuck. Like, I love the process of, look, no one else is going to follow me around with a camera right now, right? To document my life. I can't afford that. Also, um, no one else is going to be my subject, right? Like, I can't just have an actor on, on call 24-7. Like, I'm the only person I can afford right now. Like, my wife is super interesting. Actually, she's like the most interesting part of my vlog in, in some ways. And that's because that's the time that she gives me. You know what I mean? But I'm the only one I can afford. I'm the only one that's going to agree to what I'm doing. And I have no qualms with it because, I don't know, the world's so fucking crazy anyway. Like, me being a middle-aged man and filming myself is, like, the least of people's worries. Like, yeah. if you have a problem with that, like, you have to check your own stuff because it doesn't impact you at all, right? Yeah. So when you start doing it, yeah. Um, what was the community response or the YouTube response and how quick did that start to happen? Uh, it happened a little fast and then it really died and it's sort of been like peaks and valleys. I mean, I'm, a sm I'm super small still. Um, I'm starting to feel some momentum. The cool thing is that I've felt a lot of encouragement from the community here, actually. Like when my wife and I walk up the street, we actually like people will be like, Sean of Paradise or like, hey, buddy, Sean, like I've seen your videos and like, that stuff's cool because when you live in a town of 3,000 people and it's a very specific town, you know, and everyone's like sort of in each other's business, it's a small town. Uh, it was really cool that people were very encouraging. You know, I, I was very shy about the whole thing at first. And as that, as that kind of, as, I, as it goes along, I'm less shy and less shy. But was there any reticence about the community, about you showcasing, a, essentially blowing up the spot, like how great this town is? So like, I... No. Okay. Here's the thing. They're already doing it anyway, right? Like, there's realtors out there that are that are blowing it up. There's, you know, people are blowing up social... Like, I'm personally off of social media. I only do YouTube. I don't name the surf spots. You kind of can't tell where they are, that kind of stuff. Because, like, that's, that's the core stuff that we're supposed to do. But I, I feel like my message is, like, if you're a like... If you like my videos, because they're kind of odd. Like, they're a little bit obscure and they're a little bit funky. And I definitely take a lot of... Um, liberties to make fun of myself in the videos they're very personal so like my videos aren't about selling this area like if you watch the videos and you decide that this area is for you that's a byproduct of my videos like my videos are solely focused on my life they're not travel videos they're not real estate videos they're not anything else but documenting a guy's life who happens to live in this town but these are the same videos that I would make in New York they're the same videos that I would make in New Jersey or North Carolina I just happen to live here I happen to be the person that I am. And like, I, I, I won't change any of that. Like that's, it's, that's, that's where it's my art. You know what yeah. I mean? So like, if you like the town, it's because you kind of got it. Yeah. But I'm not forcing you to, like, I'm not telling you like, Sam Poncho is, you know, you got to no. check out this place and here's the 80th top reasons to, you know, I, I don't do that. That's not my bag. No. And if you were doing the videos in any of those other places you named, 
you're living a very similar life in those areas that everybody else is living. For sure. I feel like here, it is a unique, distinct experience that you're living. For sure. And not just being the gringo in town, because there's other gringos in town, but it's like, your, guy, your cats, yeah. your wife, what the life she's living is totally distinct and unique. It's super, The things yeah. that you're, you're uh, growing in your yard are distinct and unique. Yeah. So all of it is... So we're always taking on new projects. We're always like exploring new ideas. We're always doing creative pursuits. Like it, it, that stuff never stops. And that's like a part of who we are. I think, um, you know, I think it would be a disservice to this town if I was like trying to really sell it, essentially, like sell it to the wrong people. Like I really want like-minded individuals to find their way here. Yeah. You know, that's a cool thing. I also want people to have faith that like that you can actually just totally change your life. Like we came from Manhattan, you know, 1.5 million people. And I feel just as comfortable here in a small town. So like maybe that is for you. Yeah probably isn't for you but what i'll tell you has been interesting about the youtube journey for me is that like i get a few emails every week of people sending me their financial documents telling me how much their retirement is going to be and saying hey sean can i do this and like if you happen to stumble upon my videos and you see like that persona like he's a goofy guy like if you go into the comments or if you do a little research about me like you'll say like oh maybe he is an earnest guy that has a you know some thoughts on things but like i'm a bit of a goofball there but people don't care. They're so desperate to reach out and like talk to somebody that's doing something that they want to do. So they like send me this and they're like, hey, do you think we can do this? You know, do you think we can do this thing that you've done? And, and I take that very seriously. Like I don't slough that off. I answer every single email. I answer every single comment because it's people's lives, you know, and I, I want to tell them like, I can't tell them if it's for them or not. I can tell them like, this is what this costs. This is what this looks like. And I try to lay it out for them. And you can kind of get a vibe like, this might not be for this person. Right. Like, let me lean them as, you know. But in a way, I just want to give them as much information as I can and let them sort it out on their own. You know, I'm not, I'm not advocating for you to move to Mexico. No. But I am advocating for you to look at your options, for sure. Because, like, your life could be even better than you imagined. And that's like the, you know. I agree. Um so speaking about the YouTube experience or journey, yeah. I think five years ago, I was very, I felt like YouTube was vapid and a cesspool. Yeah. Like, or the comments section was a cesspool For and sure. so much of the content being created was vapid. Yeah. And especially the selfie mode vlog thing. Yeah. I was just like, you gotta be kidding me. It's really, I don't know if it's come around or if maybe I just started paying closer attention. Sure. Like it was graining, it was gaining critical mass with me uh, being dismissive of what people were connecting with and it gained enough mass to where I was forced to pay attention then I realized the value of it. Yeah. But so much of what you're talking about with that community that you have fostered and that is engaging with you and what you're doing, I'm now aware of yeah. and it is totally unique and it's actually super akin to intimate person-to-person -person contact. Jeez, it really is. It's more similar to person-to-person -person contact. Than my own Instagram. Right. Than my own... Almost anything other than person-to-person -person Yeah, contact. I mean, than my own friends in my Instagram, which right. I don't do anymore. These people, it's so earnest, because they're, really, they're really like, it's so niched down in a way that like they're here for you yeah, and you're exactly. here for them and you kind of all get it. And it's really, in that way, it's super beautiful. Like, I really appreciate that. Your, your own Instagram is, in fact, a complete 
facade. Oh, absolutely. Like, good friends who you've known forever yeah. on there are presenting a facade yeah. that is not reflective of their real life. No. Whereas that YouTube experience that you're talking about is... Dude, even my YouTube, which inverse. is heavily edited and super funny and kind of weird, like you can tell that there's a real human there well, and you see, you see warts. You, you still see yeah, warts. I was going to say, you keep saying that there's a character and a persona. Yeah. I would say, no, the Sean in Paradise yeah. is... The Sean that I know, for the most part. I guess maybe I'm having a hard time with being this guy that's gotten here, you know, with some help from his friends. You know what I mean? Like I, I feel very fortunate. It so feels, I, I kind of don't like, want to. I don't want to own that yet. I don't feel like I've earned that. You know, we talk about earning things. Like I don't feel like I've earned that yet. So maybe I'm not comfortable with it yet. I feel like the character that you're presenting is similar to the character that I know. It's it's me in a good mood. It's me at at my best or most honest sure. usually. You know what I mean? Sure. And, and whether that looks good or bad doesn't matter to me. It's, it's super honest, I'll tell you that. Yeah. Um, so why'd you delete Instagram then? Uh, so by the way, deleting Instagram and Facebook is impossible. Like, I've just deactivated them and I don't do them. But, like, it's they make it super hard to actually, like, delete the things. I know. They like, do. I'm still getting Facebook, like, birthday announcements that they I don't want. They still want all of your information and they're not going to give that up. They don't want to give it up. Uh Instagram was, in, I was a, I mean, you know, I was an avid, I posted over 10,000 times in five years. Like I was a super Instagram user. I didn't have a lot of followers, like a couple thousand or whatever, but like, uh, it was incredibly unhealthy for me. Like I feel so, <laughs> I was constantly comparing myself to everyone for every reason that you could think of. Yeah. Not, not good at all. I really thought that all those people on there were my friends. And now that I, I haven't been there for eight months or nine or whatever it is, like almost a year. Like, I can't even remember. I couldn't even tell you who I'd want to look up to check on what they're doing. Besides, like, people that I really know in real life, like you or relatives or friend friends, you know. Everyone else who you talk with daily. You know, I would talk with people on Instagram daily that I was like, we have, we've shared deep things. There's a lot of, but it's not, it's really not real. Mm. It's not that it couldn't develop into something real. But I'm in Mexico, you're wherever you are in the world. You know, I had friends and followers from Europe and people I've never met before that I talk to daily. Like, it's so, and it's not that it's bad, but like, I don't know, I think, I think you're better suited to, to deal with things in real life uh, than you are to, to foster that. Would there have been a way to manage it so that it was a service to you or is it just all negative? I don't care. Is the, is the, I don't care. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, would my brand grow? Would my, would my YouTube grow if I was also posting on TikTok short, you know, like, and, and Instagram and Facebook, and it was all like part of this ecosystem of Sean in Paradise for sure. Yeah. I'm not interested. I don't care. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to feel less than every single day just by scrolling. And when I started looking at my details and I'm like, what, I, four hours on this phone, six hours on this phone, like. On this phone, like that doesn't that doesn't make sense to me. I work in YouTube. I don't. I check out other people's YouTubes because it's like it's like market research, right? I want to see how they're editing, what music they're using, how long and short their cuts are. Like I want to see all those things. I don't care about their lives like I did on Instagram. On Instagram, I'm seeing what I don't have. You know what I mean? On YouTube, I'm seeing maybe what I could be. Like these guys that are in professional, you know cinematographer like wow they're doing all these things and they're sharing these tips with me like youtube you know i fixed my car we have a 2011 rav4 you know like i probably fixed that thing five times since i moved to mexico just based on youtube videos like youtube helps you 
and I don't scroll, I don't look at things, I just, it's 100% output in my life now. There's no input. I don't need other people's stuff, you know? Like, if I look for other people's input, I'm gonna curate it myself and not just be forced to look at it in a feed. Yeah. It, it just doesn't work. And I spent eight years of my life, I think, on Instagram, like, you know, and that's, we. I mean, we all have, right? We all have spent eight or 10 years on Instagram. Man, I'd hate to add up the time spent. Yeah, because you could have learned guitar, you could have learned <laughs> piano, you could have learned, I could have learned Spanish better, you know, I could have become a better surfer, I'd probably be switch foot by now and busting airs like Idolo. The truth is I wouldn't have done any of those things nope. with that time. I would have drank more. <laughs> no. Um, it should... Waterwaystravel.com has been developing and delivering world-class surf trips for 29 years. In fact, they've organized many of the trips that you have probably informed your understanding of the entire surf world upon. From magazine trips back in the 90s, brand photo shoots, to organizing pro surf trips for the films that we grew up loving, Waterways has perfected the art of scoring almost anywhere in the world. Everyone is thinking about warm water right now, but the CT is going to J-Bay in three weeks, and I'm sure that it'll have you jonesing for that long right-hand perfect point break. Waterways has an incredible setup right there, steps away from J-Bay, plus South Africa offers game reserves, world-class wineries, fishing. It is hard to imagine a more beautiful destination. So check it all out on waterwaystravel.com, wherever in the world, by the way, that you want to go and any level of luxury that you want and expect. Waterways provides a comprehensive concierge surf travel experience. They'll save you time, they'll save you money, and all of the anxiety associated with travel. So look no further. They are our friends and they're great partners for our listeners. Go to waterwaystravel.com. Through my entire time in Mexico, without Wi-Fi half the time, especially while I was at the beach, you know what was incredibly handy? That was my Veyer watch running on solar power. Classic dive watch design with a rotating bezel. Looks great. Has a nylon strap. Seems impermeable to wear and tear. Waterproof, of course, guaranteed waterproof, assembled in the U.S., it's a phenomenal watch for the price, and I'm home now, but the thing is in as good of condition now as the day that I got it. I've put it through its paces, banged it around, and the thing looks its scratch-free. It still looks brand new. So I'm a huge fan. Go to veyerwatches.com, read the over 6,000 five-star reviews. There's a lot of reviews on there from self-identifying quote, watch collectors who probably know a lot more about watches than I do, and they are just raving about the quality, the construction, the durability, all of the things that I've come to love in my Veyer watch. So go to veyerwatches.com. Veyer is spelled V-A-E-R. Check everything out. Learn more about their build quality, their free U.S. shipping, their easy returns, etc., etc. Our promo code with them is SPLENDOR15, and that'll save you 15% off your purchase. Veyerwatches.com promo code Splendor fifteen. Enjoy. Um, it should be stated that Sean in Paradise is not a surf vlog. No, but there is surfing in it. Yep. Uh, how do you feel about posting video of yourself surfing? Is there any insecurity about that? None whatsoever. Really? Yeah, none at all. Uh, First of all, when I was a good surfer, I had no video record of it. So that sort of bummed me out. I always wanted that. 
Uh, I like making my edits. They, I make them with music. They're fun. I don't care if I show myself falling. I don't care if I show every wave in a, in a session. Uh, I enjoy watching myself because that's how you learn. And to be honest, the ecosystem of YouTube is filled with guys that are way more successful than me that are posing as absolute professionals and teaching you how to surf skate and teaching you how to just surf in general. And they're coming off as like professional surf instructors and they surf you know, very average or not as good as me. So I, I just feel like, you know what? It's, it's all out there anyway. Like, I don't, I don't care. Like my surfing is what it is. Like, you know, it's like in life, like what I, that was my session, you know, like what, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Like I fell, I surfed. Okay. I spazzed out. Like that's it. Like the thing is that I surfed and I surfed in Mexico and I didn't wear a wetsuit and yeah, it was knee high, but that was my life. And that's awesome. Like yeah. I, I have no problems with it whatsoever. I like it no vanity about it or ego about it or yeah whatever. there's always ego about it i have ego about everything but I, the, my ego in youtube is definitely related to my production value and my editing and the surfing part is just like something that i also do yeah like i'm introducing cooking segments and that's just also something that i do you know so it's just a sort of you know other people have a shtick my shtick might just be surfing you know like you're gonna get a minute and a half of surfing in my vlog and then the rest is gonna be my life in mexico Right. You know, it's, and probably you're going to see some of my cats. I have five cats. <laughs> <laughs> the cats are main characters. Are you kidding? Oh, the cats are awesome. Like I have plans to do future videos that are just me narrating like the lives of my cats. Really? Yeah. I'm super passionate about that. There's a huge cat culture out there that that might actually be your gateway to, to millions of followers. Let's lean one, in. One can only hope that cats would be my passport to success. It truly could be, dude. I always say this, that surfing has been my social passport. Surfing, when I moved to New York, gave yeah. me all my friends. In yeah, high school, yeah. it gave me all my friends. Here in Mexico, it's given me all my friends. And uh, yeah, maybe cats will be my, my success passport. I really believe it could be. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to do, like, have you seen those videos that are black and white where it's like a French cat? And yeah. they, I'm going to do stuff like that. Like, I'm super into it, yeah. <laughs> for sure. Um, do you have any regrets leaving the States? And then follow-up question, do you think that you will ever go back? No and no. Really? Yeah. It's crazy. I, I grew up, like I said, I was born on a military base, Camp Lejeune. My father was a 20-year Marine Corps officer. I, have a, I, had a, I had a deep love of the United States. I still do. Uh, but I'm, I don't know, like something just feels like it got lost along the way up there a little bit. And the, it just got, you know, the, the, the middle class is going away. That's sort of where I grew up. And the, the lower class is getting larger and the, the upper class is just, the what, the, what the billionaires have is just incredible. The like, lower class is getting larger in terms of number of people. Yeah. And the upper class is getting larger in number number of dollars, of dollars that they yeah. have yeah and, and it's just like so i just i look at what's going on like we we moved to mexico before the pandemic that's just how it sh shook out because of my wife's job loss and then the pandemic happened and you know life wasn't perfect in mexico but it was certainly like less confusing as it was in the states like we we were scared of what was going on because we didn't know what was going on but we didn't have all the political stuff as well so when I look back to the States and all the political stuff, it's just, it's a super bummer. But I, look, I want the, the United States to succeed. Like our, we're still invested. Our 401ks are still up there and stuff like that. Um, but I don't really see a need to go back. Financially, yeah. I don't even think we can afford to go back and live a quality of life that's half as good as what we have here. 
Definitely not. I mean, you're not going to be living on the coast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to have a house like a mi- like a half a mile from the beach and, and eating the- all the food that you were eating down for here. For sure. Yeah. So um, no, we and and uh, there if we leave Mexico, which I would, I'd probably be surprised. We, we because my wife's European, we'd probably go to Europe. You know. Great, great alternative. Yeah. By the way, there's but a I, lot of great alternatives. But I do love the United States. I do love New York. Like New York's the most amazing city in the world. It, it look if I could afford to live in Solana Beach or Dana Point, like of course, like that. Those are beautiful places. Like they're, they're incredible communities. But even then, the quality of life isn't what it is here. You're sitting in the freeway so often, uh, and I, I mean, if I if I I'd have to have ten million in the bank. You know, it yeah. would have to be such a yeah yeah. yeah. Um, just a kind of thought that I have at this point in the conversation is about you're documenting your life through Sean in Paradise on YouTube as a platform, but you've always documented your life in some way or another. Yeah. Not always, but there's been times where you've had blogs. Yeah. Um, the one that your wife met you on, but yeah. you had another one that I was reading for a period of time. I, think I don't so. think it was that same one. Probably a different one. Yeah. yeah it was remember. a different one. Yeah. But it was documenting your life. It was a diary that was online. Oh, sure. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. When I was, when I was writing more. Yeah, for sure. And uh, so it feels like you've always had the desire to document it publicly to a certain degree. Yeah, yeah. And what I've seen is uh, the kind of the value of those things is the comments section. Like the community that develops, you literally met your wife through doing that. I did, yeah. And when I was, wow. the one that I was reading that was a different one. Okay. It was the comments that were that kind of became interesting. Yeah, like I was curious to know what you were up to, and that's why sure. I would read it. Yeah, but then it was equally as curious to see what people were commenting on, and you being able to engage with those people. Sure. And those things were pretty obscure because there's no way to advertise it. There's no algorithm that's feeding it to other people. But feels good. Yeah, it yeah. does. And then so to see kind of the YouTube thing now mm-hmm. and as intimate as those comment sections are, which we've already discussed, mm-hmm. is kind of the ultimate expression of it. So and I think that you're better at this medium. I don't know. This medium just feels right for you for whatever reason. Oh, I appreciate so, that. Yeah. Thank you. I, I I take it seriously. I don't take myself seriously at all, but I yeah. take it very seriously. And and when people comment to me like they're real people. Like they're real people, yeah. and I take it very seriously. They're they're the people that are supporting me now. Like you know, they're starting to send money or click a button that gives me more money. And like that's, I know how hard it is for me to part with my own money. You know, that's a big thing. Like that's a, I mean, you know, you've you've done this thing with the podcast that's been remarkable. And it, it beyond the the financial part of it, there's like a, a validation and a you know and a sort of attaboy. And I and yeah, maybe I've been chasing that a lot in my in my whole life. That's true. But it's good to see. It's good to see people engaging with it. It's awesome. And and, and I, I really like, honestly, David, I feel like I give good advice because I care. Not because I'm smart, but because I care and I listen. And I'll really like try to think like, is this right for this person? And, and I'll try to say that without, you know, my own judgment. But I, I really, I care. Like, I, I like that. That's the good part. Um, and I and I and I hope as my channel grows that I have the stamina to keep engaging with people like that because that's like that's the part that like really totally feeds me you know absolutely 100%. and I think that's that's the part that's the that's life like we we have nothing else besides like these relationships in our life like the yeah. money none of it means anything except for how we are as a a human going through life completely um, let's close on well I've got two thoughts now actually. 
First question of two. What's your one board policy? I mean, you kind of explained it came from your youth. Yeah. But even still, you only ride one board and you said you get one board a year. Yeah. That's, uh, that's an I, anomaly for a lot of people that are listening and that I've interviewed in the past. I have a lot of thoughts about this. I think that you, uh, in much of the way that like, I learned on a 5.7 by 17 and a half, by, or by 17 by two, whatever it was, um, you got to know your craft. Like you got to know your actual tool, right? Like to intimately know my surfboard, it takes more than a month. It takes a long time. Like I, I don't know. I just believe that you, I believe that most surfboards are good and that you need to figure out how to ride them. And I also think that you should probably ride on the hardest, like the hardest craft that you can, you know, like you should really like ride the smallest, most difficult board that you can. And then like, that's how you, you know, that's how you learn. So coming forward, like get to know your board. Like if like I, the board that I'm riding right now is a, is a fish beard. It's the first twin I've ever owned in my life. Right. Mm -hmm. And who am I to think that I'm going to figure out a twin fin in a, in a year? You know what I mean? Like, like, yeah, you can have 15 different twin fins, but like, are you really going to sort it out? Like, I'm not that good of a surfer to like, I have a hard time even noticing nuance and fins still because I grew up on just thrusters. You know, I just grew up on these potato chips. Um, so yeah, I don't want variables. I want to see how good I can get on one board. That's kind of my thing. I, what, what size is that fish beard? It's a channel islands, by the, the way, channel islands fish know. beard. It's five, seven. Okay. Yeah. And it's 27.7 liters, which is the heaviest board I've ever had in my life. Which is so light to me. I felt that thing and I'm like, this thing's tiny. So the last board before that was a happy that was at 24.9. Wow. Yeah. And I am way too, and I'm way too heavy to ride that right now. Yeah, that is shocking to me. (laughs) Um, Uh, So is that the only surfboard that you own? uh, Yeah. Yeah. Besides the Honda. yeah, the yeah. one that, yeah, yeah. okay. I, I left a board with Sean, uh, Roger Hines, Twin Fin Fish. Yeah, right. which is so. super fun to ride. And it's actually the, the board that I ride when it's ever under waist high. I'll just yeah. take that out. It's so fun. So um, I love the philosophy that you're talking about. I don't know that it's the, I'll be honest with you. <laughs> there might be some flaws in the philosophy. It, there are. Well, yeah. there, we identified one a couple days ago, but yeah. I'll get into that in a second, but I love in theory, everything you're talking about. And that's the way that, you know, if you're, um, that's the way surfing was forever. But but the thing is that I think, I feel like people are trying to, 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 to take a shortcut. They are. Yeah. Because you you can't like, you can't just jump to the bigger board because the waves suck. Like you got to learn how to surf bad waves. Or there's a financial economic limitation for so many people. Absolutely. Traditionally, historically, yeah. and until now. But when you look at even professional surfers in the 70s, it was like they rode one board throughout the whole year. Yeah. Because they, they were professional, but they weren't earning money off of surfing. Right, right. So there's no, you just can't have a bunch of boards. And now, because people might be of means, they're like, oh, I need 12 boards. I need a board for every different occasion. Right. If the waves are big or small or wind or not or low tide, high tide, I need a board for every one of these conditions. But it's just because they don't want to do the work. And they're not good at surfing. Right. You know? So <laughs> they're, they're putting the cart before the horse. Yeah. So like I need a boards before I even know how to surf each right, board. Right? right. So that's why I agree with everything that you're saying. However, I showed up and I rode that my old Roger Hines twin fin fish and it had a pair of fins on it that I also sent down with it. And I was like, man, this board just tracks. Like, 
I can't, it was funny because I saw it tracking on you. I, I really got, saw it. I cannot get this board to turn in any way. Like I can get to my feet and it drives off the bottom, but it won't quite get up into the position to do a turn. And then it projects me out onto the shoulder. Then I'm on the shoulder and I'm trying to get it to do a cutback and it'll only cut down, you know? Yeah. And I'm like, but, and I even, I took a little while and then I verbalized it to you, but I padded it with, but I don't want to blame the fins because I'm kooking it right now too. Right, right, right. right. But I brought some other fins, so I swapped out the fins. Yeah. And boom, first wave, instantly, it, everything changed. Yeah. And I go, and then I was like, man, I know you say you can't tell the difference with fins, yeah. but good God, yes, you can. Yeah, like you anybody can, yeah. can, you know? I just always think that it's a, it's a fault of mine. It's not. I know, I like, just have a hard time with it. That was an example of yeah. it's absolutely... First, blame yourself, of but course. But by the way, like, isn't it interesting that we always, psychologically, we always, like, blame ourselves. Or we don't want to blame the board. We, like, kind of step away from it a little bit. Like, that's not, it's but not, you, maybe you, it's me, maybe I'm kooking it, you know. Yeah, but you also know enough to know, like, I applied a certain amount of energy and pressure. And I've surfed for long enough that the board should have responded in this Can way. I push back a little bit? Yeah. Maybe your feet weren't in the right place. Like for for you, maybe you don't want to do what that those fins required on that board in the situation. Like maybe you're not there yet. Like maybe you need to go a little lower or a little higher or a little backer. So I, I'm gonna say to you, like there was a guy that made those fins. There was a guy that made that board. Probably works if you put your feet in the right place. So it was two different people that made the fins and made the board. Sure. And I agree. The guy who made the fins so couldn't did a you... killer job. Right. And those fins are for something. Right. The guy that made the board, killer job, it's for something. Those two things did not go together. Do you think that there's a surfer on the planet that could ride that combination like amazingly? Like yes. a like an Asher Pacey or something, right? Yes, they would put their feet in the right place. Yeah. So I'm not saying that to you yeah. because we should give ourselves advantages, right? But what I'm saying is that like... In my own psyche, I'm like, well, no, Sean, you're, you, you know, you need to figure it out. Yeah. Because there is a sweet spot there's that validity. Asher Pacey would find, right? Like, there, well, Tom Kern can ride anything. Or Tom Kern, right. So there's validity to that for sure. Right. And then within that, Kern could swap out the fins and then unlock magic. Yeah. And I think that's where I've, 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 uh, I've like shorted myself is that yeah. I haven't explored all that. And I, and by the way, if you ever want to talk surfboards with me, like I'm not the person. I don't know anything. Yeah. Like, and and just because people can surf okay, it doesn't mean that they know anything about surfing or, or surfboards. I don't know anything about it. And maybe like that's something in my in. I had this idea that I wanted to like do like on my YouTube. My buddy has a surf shop in town, and I wanted to do like two guys one board like every single week, like and just keep testing through these boards. You know, I haven't done it yet because of some reticence from him, but. Uh, I think it's something that I get to explore like later in life, right? Like, because I have been such an, an ardent one person, one board, you need to sort it out and, and learn how to surf it kind of guy. I, yeah, I, and I totally agree with theoretically everything that you're saying, and mm -hmm. I like the application of it. I think that's where you should always put the primary focus is mm -hmm. on you doing, trying harder and doing better and all that sort of stuff. But I'll tell you, your, uh, your conversations with the surfer, please remind me of his name, that uh, rides the... He's a brilliant guy. I think he was a rusty guy at some point. Uh, I don't. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, who you're yeah, you about. know who. I'm talking no, about. I don't. Uh, Give me more information. Parmenter. Dave Parmenter. Oh, Parmenter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, that guy. That, when the, that conversation actually. I was like, and, and just thinking about, it just opened everything up, right? Like, yeah, you have a glider now. 
Yeah. That I'm so jealous. Like, I'm like, what? I don't even know what that is. I don't understand what that is. Everything, I haven't talked to Parment. Well, I talked to him a couple months ago, but I hadn't talked to him for a year or two prior. And so many things that he had said to me in the past that I really didn't hear. Mm-hmm. And like, I know it's his philosophy on something, you know, and I'm like, oh, that's how Dave feels. But I, I it's not my thing. So many of those things are now my philosophy wow. on things. And to a degree, he believes them to a degree that I could see myself headed down. Yeah. That I'm just like, man, he fully figured it out and nailed so many things. It seems it like just it took me a long time yeah. to really fully learn and he appreciate. The, he cracked I the code. Just listened to him. He cracked the code early. Though. I should have just listened. You can't listen though because you have to learn these life experiences on your own. You gotta like really like fuck up and fall, right? Like that's how we learn. And about board design. But man, if we would just learn from other people's, they, they give us all the shortcuts, right? Like I they know. give us the, and we just can't do it, right? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. his stuff, it's it certainly is about board design. Yeah. But it's also about competitive surfing. And it's also about uh, your relationship with the ocean. Yeah. It's all, it's just about everything. Yeah. You know? The 99% that happens when you're not actually surfing. When you're just sitting there. Yeah. And that's the cool, that's the cool part. That's the part that like, that's the part that gives me hope that I will surf till I'm a hundred is the fact that just sitting out there and like analyzing the lineup is just as much surfing as the maybe one wave that I'll get in my eighties or something it like is. that. You know, I, I can picture myself in my eighties sitting out there for a half an hour, getting one wave going in satisfied. Totally. You know, that's totally 90% of it yeah. is all of that. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, Hey, uh, Oh, the other, <laughs> I did say there was one other question oh, that wow. I had and it's not surfing related, but, um, just as a joke for the listeners to appreciate, we're really living a gluttonous week here because yeah. I did not anticipate the food being as good as it is. Good. And then we also were talking early in the week about like, man, alcohol doesn't really like provide the same, enjoyment that it used to provide you know no. and it's and it had, there's like a deficit like it's not worth it for the downside of it it's not worth it because it doesn't provide the upside for yeah. it and then tonight we're going out on the ultimate gluttonous bank even though we've recognized our gluttony and we're like we shouldn't do it anymore it's too many calories it doesn't feel good <laughs> and then every night we like add more calories don't feel good i think i started off the week not having any drinks and then I've worked up for like one, the one, and then two the next night. And we're acknowledging and looking it in the face and yeah. then going, yeah, but yeah, we're going to celebrate tonight. What am I going to see David again? It's the last night. It's the last <laughs> night. So what is the ultimately gluttonous, caloric, hedonistic way to send it off? Oh, I love it. Well, I'm going to be straight up honest. Like part of it's what we're going to do tonight. That's what I'm saying. Tonight we it? are cracking open. So my wife was just in Spain. And she picked up, I went online and she picked up some foie gras and she picked up a bottle of 2002 Sauterne, which is a sweet French white wine that's, it's a miracle that it even occurs in this world. And it's a 21 year old bottle of wine and we're going to get into that tonight. And I'm, I'm, and it's a classic pairing. It's a classic pairing, foie gras and this like sweet, super acidic uh, you want to call it a dessert wine, but it's just like this electrifying kind of acidic race of a wine. What animal did the foie gras come from? I have no idea. Okay. <laughs> I have so, no idea. Well, it's, a, it's yeah. a duck or a goose or oh. something. Oh, it's it's uh, it's goose liver pate. Goose. Yeah, okay, absolutely. So it's goose. Sorry. So it's the liver of a goose yeah. fattened. Fattened. Possibly oh, yes. naturally. 
It's from France. It's natural. Okay, yeah, so for it's sure. Natural. Yeah. But the point is, it is the fattiest, richest, butteriest, meatiest it's thing. It's so that you fat can eat. that you actually have to sprinkle salt on it just Perfect. to cut it a little Perfect. bit. Perfect. And it's a classic pairing. And so Sauterne that you alluded to, it's from Bordeaux. Yep. Which is a world class region in France. But it's predominantly a red wine region. Yeah. So they do make a little bit of white wine in Bordeaux, and then they make an even littler amount of what they... The region is Sauternes, but the style of wine yeah. is really what we're referring to more than the region yeah. itself. And the style of wine is a dessert wine. And so there's various ways to make dessert wines. This is the most unique among them. So what happens essentially is that the dessert wine uh, gets um, uh, basically a... The grapes themselves. The grapes themselves develop this thing called botrytis, which is a fungus that shrivels the grapes up. All of the water leaves the grape and you're left with just the residual sugar and acidity. It's a raisin on the vine. It's a raisin on the it's vine. It's a raisin on the vine that has a fungus on it that you can see visually a mold yeah a mold yeah but the, that only happens during distinct growing conditions has to so have the right amount of fog in the right terroir yeah. it doesn't happen every year no this fungus doesn't happen every no. year but the fungus when it does happen they and that's the other thing is they're leaving the crop on the vine to see if maybe the fungus will happen right. it's a huge risk they otherwise could have made a white wine out of that they could have made crop. a they could have made a world class white wine out of that crop, right? But they decide to just gamble and roll the dice to create something that is more exceptional than any other wine you've probably ever had in your life. Because when that fungus extracts all of the hydration out of the grape, it leaves a raisin, and you can imagine squeezing a raisin, you get instead of a grape, a grape you get five drops, let's say, of juice. A raisin, you get one drop of, maybe a half a drop of juice, but it's concentrated. All of the oh, yeah. flavor that would have been in the five drops is in a half a drop. And then you ferment that and make a wine out of it. And that's what Sauterne is. It's perfect. It's like it's like a, like the difference between eau de toilette and eau de parfum. Oh, I didn't know the difference. Yeah, so toilette has a little more water. Okay. The parfum is the pure essence of the scent. What, is, what does it taste like? The that does not. Are you drinking those? I'm drinking. Drink, drink, wow, you're really into alcohol. I'm drinking some cool water. <laughs> so, so it's highly concentrated. It usually comes in a half a bottle. By the way, I haven't had a bottle of Sauterne in a decade. But you love it. I love it. Yeah, it's, it's actually nice. since I don't really drink fine wine anymore, and I'm not into the industry. It's the only thing that gives me like a little like when I think about it, my mouth starts to water. Like yeah. right now, my mouth's watering. Well. I don't think I've shared this story on air, and maybe you're not even aware of this story, but when we worked at Maury's together, and um, we had the ultimate Sauterne, which is Chateau Ikem, mm -hmm. we had it by the glass, Yeah. right? In the Cruvenet that we were selling for 50 bucks a glass, maybe? Yep. yep. Was that 50, what it was? 50 bucks. 50 bucks a glass? Yeah. The Cruvenet is basically like a wine dispenser, like a beer tap. Yeah, exactly. And so it keeps it fresh for longer than if you just put a cork in it. But we also had uh, foie gras mousse on the menu. Remember that? No, I forgot. But do you remember? Yeah, that? now I do, yeah. And it was really good. Yeah, super good. I mean, and there was a layer of fat that they would put on yeah. it. So, and it was in a little ramekin. Chef Jason. And you guys would bail, and I'd like shut it down on a Friday night, and it'd be like 1.30 in the morning. Oh. And I'm like, here's my options for eating at 1.30 in the morning. Taco Bell. Mm-hmm. Right? Which I probably did. By the way, super good. I probably did. Yeah. Periodically. Or like but, Del Taco. But you know what was the better option? Oh, man. A ramekin of foie gras mousse, <laughs> half a baguette, and 
I don't know, an eight-second pull of, of Ekem. A proper pull. An eight-second pull of Ekem. And I'm like, I, there's tons of empty bottles around. So I just grab an empty bottle, pour so some. I think it's a $150 pull. Yeah, probably. Yeah. So pull pull some, and I think it was 2001 Vintage at that time. Yeah. which is, It was the one, like which was a 100-point. It was yeah. a perfect wine, right? It was a 100-pointer. Yeah. So I, and I was like, you know what? We're on, honestly, week two of this Ekem. Time to drink. Yeah, time to drink it. Yeah. This the Cruvenet will keep the wine fresh for two weeks, sure. but we can't sell a fifty dollars glass of wine tomorrow to somebody in good faith who's especially that someone that's going to order that. That's somebody a, who's that's paying a, fifty bucks they, for they it. They probably know. They yeah yeah. So I'm like, I'm going to take some Ecam tonight, and I take some a ramekin, a foie gras, half a baguette. It was a great baguette that we were getting too, and then I'm going to go home at 1.30 in the morning, turn on the Anna Nicole show. I mean, like, I literally remember watching the... I wasn't so, into it. It was yeah. just the end of the night. You're exhausted. You just want to zone out. You want to mindless. And mindless. I'm mindless. Watching Anna Nicole eating foie gras off baguette and drinking Ekem. That's it. Listeners, I can hear him cutting the music in right now. But, like, yeah, that's amazing. It was... <laughs> I mean, I didn't mention this when we were talking about wine epiphany yeah. experiences. But this was, like... As good as it got. By the way, I want to say, like, I'm as so happy that got. you did that. Because, yeah. like, that's what I did at the Beverly Hills Wine Merchant. That was Dennis Overstreet giving you the... The green light to yeah. let you guys do that. Yeah, for sure. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, those were highlight experiences that's for me. That's killer. When I think about Sauterne, yeah. I remember those experiences. Wow. That's a, that's. There's no better. Yeah. That's beautiful. Good well, for you. Let's go eat and drink that. Let's do it. All right. Thanks so much. Yeah. It's always summer in the southern state where I'm behind the moon, floating in space. But I'm not in hiding, just trying not to be found. So when I hear my name, I never turn around. Sean in Paradise, of course, is the YouTube channel. Um, by the way, that end nightcap after dinner of foie gras and sauterne lived up to the hype. I mean, it's super indulgent. You cannot do that every day of the week or even one. You know what? You can do it about once every five years is what I'm claiming you can do. But um, lived up to the hype and is quite the classic pairing as well. So thank you very much, Astrid, for lugging those things home from Spain. Thank you, Sean and Astrid, for hosting me and uh, sharing that experience with me. Of course, you could check out um, their entire life, in fact, which is kind of amazing, on YouTube. Sean in Paradise is what you search. S-I-P, SIP, Sean in Paradise. And I'm a big fan of that town and uh, just had a blast. We'll be going back there, I think, a lot in the future. So... Thank you to the people of San Pancho for a super warm and welcoming experience as well. And thank you listeners for all of the support. Fantastic feedback about that Jeff Johnson couple of episodes. So if you enjoyed that and you want to see more, we actually publish them on YouTube. So go to our YouTube channel, which is just Surf Splendor, and check it all out there. Of course, we're on Instagram at Surf Splendor as well, where you could share the show with friends. That is how we grow. 
And uh, yeah, just tag them in a post, DM them an Instagram post. And uh, hopefully if they find the content interesting, then they'll become podcast listeners as well where we're here every single week publishing content here on Surf Splendor, over on The Grit with Chaz Smith, over on Spit with Scott Bass, and of course, other shows that are produced under the network. You can find all of it on surfsplendorpodcast.com. That's enough of me this week. This is a gargantuan episode, but hopefully you enjoyed it. I'll be back next week with an all new episode. My name is David Scales for Surf Splendor, and I'm encouraging you, get back into the ocean, share some waves, and of course, shred on. And don't forget to post your job for free at linkedin.com slash surf. That's linkedin.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com.